I'm usually pretty agnostic about pairings in this franchise. Like, I, you know, I'm good with whatever as long as it's fun. Storm and Callisto to me are soulmates and I want them to be married. Like, that is how I feel about these characters. Endgame status. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, people mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. Only hope is X-Men. Welcome to Cerebro, the X-Men podcast where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of homo superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith, and with me today is returning guest Spencer Ackerman here for the fourth time on Cerebro. Spencer, that puts you in rarefied company with only Sarah Sentry at the moment. So that is an exciting accomplishment. How are you today? I'm thrilled to be on one of Entertainment Weekly's best podcasts of 2021. Can't believe I have as many appearances as the esteemed Sarah Century, who might be more qualified to have much of this discussion today (laughs) than I am. Certainly, yeah. Callisto, the character we're here to talk about today, is an interesting one because... Yes, my instinct would probably have been to have a lesbian on for this episode, but your enthusiasm for this character from a political perspective has been something you reiterate like every time you are on this show. And I did want to get into the political underpinnings of Callisto with you because you have such a distinct vision of it. Spencer, for people who are just joining us now, is a Pulitzer Prize-winning national security and foreign policy reporter. He is the writer of Forever Wars, a newsletter on Substack, and the author of the recent book, Reign of Terror, which tracks the response to 9-11 and how it bred the conditions that led to the rise of Donald Trump and authoritarianism in this country generally. He is also the writer of an upcoming Suicide Squad comic at DC with fellow friend of the pod, Evan Narcisse, that is coming sometime this year. So that's very exciting. Yes, I am beyond thrilled for that. This is an absolute dream come true. I can't say much of really anything about it so far, but if you are on the Cerebro Discord and you enjoy the sort of observations every now and again I make about comic books and comic book characters, I think you will really like this miniseries. And also you will get the incredible work of Evan, who unlike myself is a proven comic book talent. (laughs) And I am having an amazing time learning from him. I think the two of you writing Amanda Waller is a really interesting prospect. And that is the thing I think I'm looking forward to most. I really can't wait to see how you guys write that character. She's one of my favorite DC characters. You get two Cerebro guests for the price of one on this one. Yeah, that's exciting. I really hope all of you in particularly in the uh, Cerebro Discord community check it out. You know, it's been a little over a year since the Cerebro Discord community started after Spencer Ackerman insisted on this podcast live on the air that I start one. (laughs) It's brought a lot of joy to a lot of people. And so that's another accomplishment on Spencer Ackerman's vaunted resume. Except that Connor did and does all of the work. 
along with the amazing team of mods. Yeah, I was going to say, shout out to the mod team. They really do all the work. I just kind of vibe, which is all I really want to do. So they are the ones who are really keeping it running smoothly. Speaking of them, actually, before we get into Callisto, I want to share the upcoming February slate here on Cerebro. So next week to round out January, Eisner Award-winning editor-in-chief of Women Writing About Comics, Nola Fow, will be joining me to talk about Destiny. You all knew that already. Then a fun slate coming up in February. First, software programmer and star of the Cerebro Discord, where he is our camp counselor extraordinaire, a moderator of great skill, Justin Park will be yes! here to talk about Shiro Yoshida, Sunfire, a character who has a long history in the X-Men and is currently the only member of the X-Men team right now that I have not covered. So I'm excited to get to him. And I know that Justin has a lot of opinions and has read now every single appearance that this character has ever had in anticipation of the show. So I'm looking forward to that. Then... Josh Cornillon returns to the pod to talk about Miranda Leavold, Stacey X, a character I absolutely adore. I couldn't think of anything more appropriate for episode 69 of Cerebro. Yes. So I hope you'll all join us. <laughs> that. Then celebrated author Victor Laval joins Cerebro for a dig into the pit beneath Krakoa. We're going to talk about everything Victor Creed, Sabretooth, in anticipation of the miniseries. The first issue will be out by the time Victor and I are recording, so we'll be talking about that book. I'm really excited. Victor's a great guy, and his work is always worth analyzing for hours and hours on end. So I'm excited to have the X-Men comics that I analyze for hours and hours on end dovetail with work by an author <laughs> I really, really respect. Finally, to finish out February, Kat Overland, also of Women Writing About Comics, will be joining us to talk about Jono Starsmore, Chamber, best known for his run on Generation X, but also a reliable supporting player in the X-Men franchise. Questions are now open for Sunfire, Stacey X, Sabretooth, and Chamber. You can ask general questions for Victor Laval, but I would prefer if you could keep them X-related, please. Or at the very least, comics-related, related to his comics work. Questions are now open for all four of those characters. They are now closed for Destiny because I will be recording soon. I am really excited about this February slate. I think it's going to be super fun. I hope that you are all excited too. Spencer, now that that business is out of the way, I'd love to get a general sense of why you wanted to talk about Callisto, leader of the Morlocks, a relatively secondary character in the X-Men franchise, but one I've always really loved and one who I think is very memorable whenever she turns up. What is it about this character that speaks to you so profoundly? So first, amazing slate. There are a lot of characters and a lot of guests that I'm really looking forward to. I know nothing about Chamber. I'm looking forward to learning about that. I really am very much looking forward to hearing Justin's voice because he is such an amazing person, so supportive on the Discord, and I'm really excited to hear his episode. I've been looking forward to that one for a while. I needed to give him time to finish reading every appearance of Sunfire because he insisted on really doing his research, which I love. That's why he's such an effective moderator in the Discord. <laughs> like he's on top of it. I'm psyched about that one. So a couple of weeks before we record, I finished a really amazing novel by Gail Jones, who is a kind of unsung titan of the African-American novel. This is her first book in a very long time. 
It's a novel called Palmares, and I'm probably mispronouncing that and I apologize. What Palmares was, was the most famous, the most storied, the most legendary society, community known as, and I apologize if I mispronounce this as well, a Kiyombo, essentially a community of enslaved people who escape to make their own fate, to make their own community, to defend themselves, to free their loved ones in Brazil. There are obviously uh, tremendous similarities. This happened in Jamaica. This happens on a grand scale. You know, the Haitian Revolution is quite similar to this. This happens where the transatlantic slave trade happens. People in such conditions taking back their dignity. Obviously, the Morlocks are not that. I'm not making a kind of one-for-one comparison. The experiences are certainly, you know, quite different. But I couldn't help but think of it to kind of crystallize when I started going through Callisto's character history and trying to distill it in such a way to kind of answer your question, which is that Callisto, as you mentioned, is a secondary character throughout her history, throughout the way she's developed from when she's introduced in Uncanny 169. But she shouldn't be. She should be considered as peer of the great mutant societies that we recognize from Charles Xavier's X-Men to the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants and then the Acolytes around Magneto to the various societies across history that Apocalypse establishes to Emma and her community at the Massachusetts Academy and then Generation X and then also dovetailing with the X-Men. It is conspicuous But throughout the history of her community, we understand immediately why they are so invisible, because the centrality of what the Morlocks mean is most often rendered by society invisible. Mm -hmm. The Morlocks are a group banded together because they are hunted, because They are driven into situations of extreme terror, extreme persecution, extreme economic deprivation and manipulation, extreme exploitation, extreme physical torture. These are the mutants who cannot pass. And we see through this community together the shame of the X-Men. We see a profound challenge for the first time in the X-Men's character history to the X-Men failing on their own stated terms as heroes in an expansion of who gets to qualify as an X-Men is suddenly thrown into a very dark light. When we first meet the Morlocks, we see them depicted I'm just going to turn to my notes for a second because I like the way I put it part. I knew you would have comprehensive notes. You always do. Before you get too deep into them, if people haven't heard episode 50 that we did on Charles Xavier, I think that's probably something worth listening to before this because I imagine we're going to be drawing a lot of comparisons between these two characters. One of the things we talked about in that episode was the question of Tommy the Morlock, who is the first victim of the mutant massacre. She's the spotlight character in the first issue of that event. She 
doesn't appear in any other issue until the Krakoa era, when she has been resurrected alongside the other Morlocks who were killed in the massacre. We talked about Tommy because Tommy is a visible mutant. She has a rainbow pattern to her skin. She seems to be a teen runaway of some kind who has found solace and family with the Morlocks, like other characters like Skids have. She has the power to fold herself flat. Her power is much like Kitty Pride's, but is not as useful. And so the question is, is this visible mutant who wasn't quite as useful as Kitty Pride someone Xavier simply didn't pick up on Cerebro or someone he did pick up on Cerebro much as he picked up Kitty on Cerebro and decided she wasn't worth the hassle because she wouldn't be a viable X-Man? What does that mean, and what does it mean that Callisto's community took all of these people in? What astounded me was not long after our conversation, the first issue of Inferno dropped, and Jonathan Hickman used Tommy as an X-Force stealth operative, showing exactly what we had been saying, which is that if given the opportunity to flourish, this is a character who could have been quite useful, but she wasn't a human-passing character, and she wasn't as potentially viable as someone like Shadowcat. So I loved that. I loved seeing her specifically working for Sage, which feels, as always, like a rebuke to Xavier. Pretty much everything that Sage does feels like a criticism of him on some level, right? That was just a neat bit I wanted to bring back in. Now you have your notes out. I see you have them all before you. So please continue. So the whole idea of the Morlocks presentation speaks to how we render poverty invisible and stigmatize it by making it untouchable, especially as we produce it at grand scale. The Morlocks are supposed to disgust a reader. They're hideous. They're filthy, they're covetous. Callisto wanting Warren for his beauty, Caliban wanting Kitty. There is this quality to the initial stories, the kidnapping of Warren and then the kidnapping of Kitty, that both present the Morlocks as people who are not part of polite society and who capture these paragons of Xavierism and try to forcibly marry them. So... This is really what stuck in my mind when I was rereading all of these X-Men issues after reading Palmares by Gail Jones, is that what you have to strain to see between the panels of the first Claremont arc with the Morlocks, which I want to say is one of the best X-Men stories of all time, in my opinion. It's a great story. It is a little hard to track with the way that the characters develop after the initial story, where they're kind of boogeymen in the sewer. You yes. Know? Well, let me let me just let me just say that certainly we'll get to this a whole lot. Callisto and the Morlocks broadly. We're, we're going to talk to this a lot today. Callisto certainly is a character who suffers the consequences of a lot of different writers and a lot of different characterizations, yeah. a lot of which are directly contradictory. Contradictory to one another, yes. Which we'll get into, but I just want to say the reason why having read Gail Jones's new novel, Palmaris, stuck in my mind when I read kind of between the panels of Uncanny 169 to 171 is that you have to strain to see a lot of it. Some of it you'll see kind of retrospectively as you, you know, progress through X-Men comics, is that what is most often portrayed kind of in narrative panel or, or through the eyes of the X-Men is that like 
the Morlocks are this barbaric and predatory entity that like will will just like pop up as a threat all of the time. But in fact, what you have to notice between the panels is that they have a society down there. They have a healthcare system in Hewer. They have security in Sunder and in the rule of Callisto. They have an implied rescue operation, which you know we can get into when I want to read the most important panel in Callisto's history in X-Men 170. Mm-hmm. But in Caliban, they have a mechanism of finding other people in the same sort of jeopardy that they are. They are not sort of waiting for people to come down in the sewers. They do what the X-Men tell themselves they do. Right. Caliban is Cerebro on an egalitarian level because it doesn't require Charles Xavier to use him, you know? He's the people's Cerebro, Yeah. right? Like Charles has to put on this weird helmet in order to amplify himself to like pinpoint find like these particular mutants that he's searching for. Whereas Caliban is basically in Callisto who Caliban would die for, like Sunder would die for her. And does. They just want to free and bring to safety the people like them. And it's a brutal society down there at times because they're in conditions of such deprivation And the Morlocks, of course, themselves have been through extreme trauma. But notice they have dignity. They have politics. They solve problems for one another. They have to, or the society couldn't exist, particularly knowing that they're like living on scraps that they can salvage. It's brutal within the conditions of deprivation, but the brutality that's shown on panel is supposed to reflect their brutality, not the brutality of everything around them that led to the need for them to have this sanctuary. We notice the community that they have under Callisto. Tommy, in that first issue of the the Mutant Massacre, She and like the weird Hellfire Club guy Mm -hmm. are on the like the L.A. train terminal. She's having like the terror of being hunted by the marauders. And she says to herself, like, now there are no more tunnels for me to take safety in. So clearly under Callisto, Tommy, as a child, felt safe. Similarly, that's Marrow's entire storyline. Yes. Marrow is a scared child during the mutant massacre and then everything that follows it because she remembers the safety of Callisto and longs for it and seeks to hold Callisto and also Storm at times accountable for what happens when it's shattered. That I think is where, and particularly when they adapt the X-Men into other forms of media, the cartoon show, the movies, the way they portray the Xavier school is like the Morlocks that like in a way that only like it takes until Grant Morrison. Who takes that note from the movie. Because they understand this shit. Yes, absolutely. Because their politic is more expansive in that way than some of the other writers who've tackled it previously. My friend Matt Bors a couple months ago got me the coffee table companion book to the X-Men animated series. Great book. In the the kind of liner notes, I, this is the only way I can kind of you know think to describe it. The people who produce that show like talk about 
like the specific problem of how like you need to make the X-Men kind of more like the Morlocks or the Morlocks indict the X-Men too powerfully. Charles Xavier ain't letting everyone on that mansion and it's only Storm who redeems Xavier in the moment of triumphing in the battle over the literal knife fight mm-hmm. for leadership of the Morlocks because Storm entirely unilaterally after winning declares that the Xavier school is now open to the Morlocks and says in an amazing panel, you can have shelter there as Charles Xavier extended it to us. She doesn't ask Xavier for this at all. She doesn't ask his permission at all, no. She demands it. I've said this before. The Mutant Massacre is specifically a narrative contrivance required for the continuation of X-Men as a brand as it existed. Because once the Morlocks are established, it does indict Xavier so thoroughly and the X-Men so thoroughly. There's a couple... You know, it's like, oh, Cerebro couldn't reach underground, but that's ridiculous. Like, it doesn't... Caliban could find them. Yeah, Caliban could find them. And also, I mean, if Cerebro can detect Kitty Pride in Deerfield, Illinois, from Westchester, New York, you're telling me it can't detect mutants in the sewers underneath Manhattan? That's a little ridiculous. So what we have to draw from that is Charles is seeking out certain powers in people that he can use, as we see in giant size. And we talked about this a little bit in the Xavier episode, whereas Callisto and Caliban are enabling a community for people who desperately need it. For people in need. Outside of contributing to keeping the community going, you don't see Callisto asking until like the kidnapping of Lauren, which is a weird thing that we should probably discuss immediately. We're going to get into it in a second because we're going to go chronologically, yeah. You don't see Callisto assembling Morlocks to do things. You see the Morlocks there, the Morlocks holding themselves together. And here's where it gets real complicated and we can go through this, you know, as we go along in some detail, but I just want to put out sort of at the start, Warren later on in what I think is one of the worst and certainly my least favorite X-Men story, the Scott Lobdell story, Mm -hmm. Warren blames Storm for the mutant massacre. It's too far to blame Storm for it, but Storm breaks Callisto's rule and replaces it with nothing. That's exactly it. Storm takes leadership does offer this very grand gesture, but then doesn't really do much to supervise or uplift the community that she's now taken charge of. And no one else on the X-Men sort of after... Well, they don't care. They don't care at all. And we don't see... like the, The next thing that happens is Rogue, which is also amazing because there's a scene in which Charles Xavier, when he's at his most righteous, like tells the X-Men that they are entirely wrong not to extend a chance to Rogue, who seeks redemption. Meanwhile, there's an entire community that's not in need of any kind of redemption. They're in need of basic safety. They're just in need of resources. They have their own society and want to maintain it because while they experience persecution from humans, they experience malign neglect from X-Men. There are no mutant massacres before the X-Men bring their shit to the Morlocks' door. 
whether or not Sinister would have independently found the Morlocks and gone after them had the X-Men and the Morlocks never met. The Marauders are still going to slaughter them. But what would have happened if Callisto, who has, we see until Uncanny 170, this tremendous grip politically on the Morlocks out of not just strength, but also love and a sense of mutual devotion. Imagine if that was still there, what would the mutant massacre have been? We'll never know. But we have to recognize that structurally speaking, the X-Men bear responsibility, not exclusive responsibility, but the X-Men bear structural responsibility for what made the mutant massacre so horrible. The infrastructure that we face, hollowed out, waiting for what climate change has in store for us. And there we see kind of not just the debt that the X-Men can't repay, but the neglect where they're not interested in paying it. If you're a Morlock, I look forward to talking about it when we'll, we'll get to the Duggan Marauders book in the Krakoa era, which is one of my favorites and which I just reread all 27 issues of for this podcast. Not only is Callisto not respected and recognized as a peer to be on the Quiet Council, whether she wants to be on it or not, there's no invitation. They should have asked. There's no thought given to it at all, right? Because of the way the Morlocks have, I think, accustomed X-Men readers, if we're not careful to view them with the invisibility with which we view the broader society that we're immersed in treats extreme poverty, as we have been saying. Yeah, I mean, the way that people walk by the homeless on the street is the same way that readers tend to walk by the Morlocks, you know? And notice that we don't know quite how large it is, but there's a community of Morlocks in Arizona. Mm -hmm. They don't want to live on Krakoa. No. And my reading of this is that before the X-Men... We don't hear anything about the Morlocks, you know, before X-Men 169, we don't hear anything about the Morlocks. Shit seems to be as good as it's ever going to be for the Morlocks. Then afterwards, horrible thing after horrible thing after horrible thing decimates this community over and over and over. If you were a Morlock, how safe would you feel on Krakoa? Would you trust the promise of Krakoa? Krakoa, which on its councils and through its economic fora represents you not at all. Well, except for, you know, Hellfire with Callisto. I mean, Mr. Sinister is part of the government. I mean, that is really the, the bottom line, right? Right. The thing that I want to push back on a little bit is the idea that the X-Men sort of intruding on their world is what sets this all off. Because if we're going to be fair... This is, as you know, a weird story, and it's one of those early installment weird things where a character evolves a lot from their first appearance. It is Callisto who engages the X-Men, not the other yes. way around. When she attacks the surface world and kidnaps Warren, she knows exactly what she's doing. He's a famous person. Yes. Callisto is saying, eat the rich. Yes. What I guess I'm trying to say is not... So first, this is going to be a little bit tough because of how like wildly inconsistent this character is mm -hmm. across her history. So I'm trying to go with like the best fit curve. There will be things in Callisto's character history that contradict any stable take 
on Callisto because of this contradiction. That's why I think, honestly, it's time for us to start going in chronological order. Totally. Let me just finish this point. What I mean is, is that from a structural perspective, the involvement of the X-Men, which is often the X-Men deciding they will get involved, brings, on the one hand, all of the X-Men's enemies, which are vastly more powerful than this community is prepared to deal with. And then second of all, structurally, it rampages the institutions of the Morlocks and replaces them with nothing. Yeah, I agree with you. I just do think that while we're looking at that analytically, it is important that the Morlocks strike first, as it were, <laughs> you know, yeah. and I, in terms of how the story is structured, because they become much more sympathetic after this initial story and retrofitting it is a little bit complicated. So the way that it begins, and we've talked about this story a couple of times in the Storm episode, in the Warren episode, in the Candy Southern episode, because Thunder throws candy out a fucking window, through the window, through the glass. <laughs> this is a peculiar, but really, really great story that starts in Uncanny X-Men 169. It's Chris Claremont and Paul Smith. Spencer is holding his copy up to the camera in plastic. Oh, love it. Those covers are so great. Incredible. Basically, what happens in this story, which is our introduction to Callisto and to the Morlocks, is Callisto has Warren Worthington III, Angel, kidnapped because she has decided... Well, I'll just actually tell you what she says the first time we <laughs> see her when the X-Men walk in. Warren is tied up. Warren is crucified. Yeah, he's like chained up. It's a visual reference to a scene from Barbarella. Claremont loves a visual reference to a movie or TV show. And he's in his underwear. And Callisto declares, I am Callisto. My brethren have taken the name Morlocks after H.G. Wells' rulers of the netherworld. This is our domain. You visit at your peril. And when you address me, you keep a civil tongue in your head or lose it. As for why angels here, every princess must have a prince. And for me, who more fitting than the most beautiful man in all the world? The Morlocks fight the X-Men who have come to rescue Angel. Plague, who is a Morlock who can make you sick by touching you, makes everybody real sick, especially Storm, who she gives like 104 fever. Callisto insists that the X-Men be kept alive so that they can all watch her wedding to Warren, who's like drugged and unconscious. She wears like a punk wedding dress. It's all right. Like the character, if you're not familiar with her, is very clearly visually inspired by Patti Smith and Joan Jett is the aesthetic. It's like Patti Smith on the cover of Horses, except in like a Joan Jett Joan outfit. Jett's clothes. Yeah. I just want to say, if you like have any experience with New York punk rock and hardcore in the 1980s and 1990s, you just read this and think Callisto should look either like the Amoebics logo or like Amy from Nausea. And if you get that reference, you are my people. <laughs> I would argue, like, in just flipping through that, it turns out that Warren is, like, skewered by, like, these things that go through his wings and then his hands hang on it. He will be, of course, crucified, kind of, again. But it, it does look oh, like Oh, yeah, you're pierced, right. No, you're right. the wing. Yeah, yeah, no, because she doesn't want him to fly away. She later starts clipping his pin feathers. Right, which, and Storm... And Storm freaks out because Storm hates when people aren't able to fly anymore. That's like her least favorite thing, which, of course, presages her losing her powers not long after this. So I choose to interpret Callisto's character 
not being born in that moment that that's like Claremont kind of like doing like some calisthenics and is like loosening up. He's figuring out what this character's deal is. The only way I think you can interpret this story that makes sense with the character who comes afterward is that it's a prank, basically. It's a joke. She's not actually trying to marry Warren. She's not actually planning to assault him. Like, it's a performance art piece. Yeah. She's doing a punk performance art piece for the benefit of the X-Men because fuck you. With that interpretation, because there isn't a stronger alternative that I can think of. Even two issues later, the character is very, very different. There's no like inciting event that makes this kind of happen. I think that Callisto, as her character will be, even as inconsistently as it will be written, Callisto's character, I think, is, is, is kind of defined in Uncanny 170 when Nightcrawler asks, who are you, Callisto? What is this place? I can't do I can't do the accents. You would have to do that. But what you know, <laughs> Nightcrawl, Nightcrawler asks, with your abilities, could you be mutants like us? And Callisto responds, and if you have like music at home, this is where I would recommend putting on Exterminating Angel by Catharsis. Callisto responds, mutants, yes, but we're nothing like you. We're runaways, outcasts, people with no home, no one to care for them hated and hunted because of powers we didn't want or understand, deformed, despised, deserted. The alley here is a bomb shelter, built secretly during the Cold War, then abandoned. I found it, made it my home, then made it a sanctuary for those like me. And then Nightcrawler asks, but how do you find them? And she says, with a mutant whose power senses the presence of other mutants. His name's Caliban. And right there, I think you have kind of the thesis statement for Callisto and for the Morlocks forevermore. And writers will pay more and less attention to that even as they write the Morlocks. But there, I think, is kind of the, the classic understanding of who Callisto is, why she does what she does, the attitude, the spirit, the resourcefulness, the whatever it takes of it all is there. We see a whole lot throughout this arc as we will kind of again throughout our character history where like the narration will tell us that like Callisto is like a Wolverine level fighter at one point when Claremont comes back to the book he compares her as a tactician to Alexander the Great and like citation needed <laughs> Nightcrawler is able to wash her by teleporting four times we will also see throughout her character history Callisto taking L after L after L and refusing to stop fighting. Mm -hmm. On her Marvel handbook stuff, she does have a six in fighting skills out of seven, which is a remarkably high level. Now, in more recent comics, I would argue she is presented as a top tier martial artist, street fighter kind of character. That definitely is not really the vibe in this early story the way that, again, you justify it is by saying she was being arrogant, she got cocky, and she underestimated Storm, and that was her mistake. Yeah, I also interpret it as, like, there is no danger room in this bomb shelter. There is no, like, high-caloric meals available, like, to the Morlocks. Like, Callisto does not look, like, super physically robust. No. She's doing what she can with, with what she had. I am sure she is the premier fighter in that tunnel. 
For sure. I mean, otherwise she wouldn't be in charge. That's exactly. the whole deal. Like, she can't go toe-to-toe with the X-Men, and or, nor with the Marauders, and we'll see that a lot. Notwithstanding how great eventually she will be written, first by Claremont. I mean, just like as a fighter, there are lots of weird things with that second Yeah, Claremont. yeah, yeah. And then with Jerry Duggan's Marauders. Should we talk about the storm of it all? Yeah, of course. <laughs> what else are we here for? This is one of the hottest scenes, fight scenes, but I think scenes period in the history of the X-Men, the fight scene between Storm and Callisto, the intimacy of it, the way it's choreographed, literally the first panel where we see Storm from behind with like this incredible power and sexiness at the same time. Even though Storm is not using her powers, the ultimate battle of weather versus leather. (laughs) (laughs) and it's over this is a six panel two page spread so we have 12 panels for storm nearly wordlessly to as she thinks kill callisto up close she stabs callisto in the heart in the heart with her own knife in the heart with nightcrawler worrying that storm is about to die because storm has sworn not to take a life and callisto obviously will kill whomever again this is nightcrawler's conception of Callisto right. that Callisto will, will kill wantedly and like Storm is in great danger. Storm also has a high fever because of Plague's right. touch. So she's really sick. Her powers aren't particularly working well, but they also agree not to use powers. You can tell that Callisto has made a mistake when Storm throws her knife into the air and does like a cool catching the knife thing and everybody's like, ooh. And then washes her yes in like 10 panels nightcrawler offers initially like nightcrawler is the one and remember, he's like i'll do it yeah he's like I'll, I'll do it because like you have to be stopped we have to get out of here and in particular we should also back up and say the reason why this fight is happening at all is not because the x-men let alone storm seek to rule the morlocks it's because it's no. the only way they can they think they can save kitty caliban shows up with Kitty, who's got the fever from Plague, Colossus is just like, fuck this, like breaks right. out of his chains. And it's like, I'm going to kill all of you. Like, I didn't come down here to do this. But like, if you touch her, you're all going to die. They explain that like Callisto's word is law. So you better like make that not the case if you want to get out of here. And Storm, in 12 epic panels, does it. Mm-hmm. And walks away. Paul Smith is an extremely underrated artist in the history of the X-Men, not on this podcast, but I would say like generally he doesn't get enough credit for the work he does in his run on Uncanny. Apart from, for me, the like, hi, my name's Madeline Pryor panel, which I think about all the time in Alaska. (laughs) The Paul Smith panel that I always think about, it's a series of panels, but it's after she stabs Callisto in the heart, Storm just walks directly toward the reader and steps over her fallen body, believing she has killed this woman, does not look back, does not hesitate whatsoever, because sometimes you do what you gotta do. This is the moment Storm becomes the star of the X-Men, of the comic. This is also a full 18 years before Alan Iverson does this to Tyron Wu. My Cerebro NBA people will get that reference. It's, <laughs> it's a legendary thing that Alan Iverson did, anyway. I believe you. I know nothing about basketball. Shout to Walter Simonson also, because the very next issue is like this 
just awesome operatic Wagnerian moment where Storm like stands like in a pose before mm-hmm. Morlocks who are like holding torches up and yells, Morlocks! Yeah, it's an incredible splash. By right of combat, I, Storm, am now your leader. My word is law. It's amazing. And she's pulled on Callisto's vest like, I'm your leader now. She picks Callisto up like a child and says, and this is when Callisto, who's like just avoided bleeding to death, presumably because of healer. Healer steps in, yeah. Callisto is basically like, I want a rematch immediately. I don't accept this. Storm first holds her face. Yep. And then says, we have crossed knives once, little mutant. Don't push your luck. And then picks her up, hands her to Sunder, and says, Sunder, put your mistress to bed. She sends Callisto to fucking bed. To her room without supper, basically, yeah. I mean, we, we just have to also say the cover of 170, this will obviously be a central thing about both of these characters' history with one another. Their mouths are so close together. Oh, they're going to kiss at the, I mean, yeah, it's very, it also, one thing I love about that cover is that Storm is not beautiful on it. She's still a beautiful woman, but she's drawn in a grimace because of this violent fight she's in. She's allowed to look ugly in this image in a way that mirrors Callisto. And I think that that's interesting because again, I think this story is where Storm transcends the ensemble to become the star of the whole book for the rest of Claremont's time on it. In part, it's because the sort of mother Africa goddess thing that lots of people have commented on being a little tropey in the seventies, it gives way here to, wait, there's a person here underneath the gravitas, and this person is much more complicated than maybe we thought, and let's really dig into her psychology and her motivations. And it's Callisto who awakens that in the narrative. To the point where Storm literally takes Callisto's look. Yeah. Like, this is the road to Punk Storm. Like, Punk Storm is mm-hmm. born in, in those tunnels. To the point where they just put out a Callisto Marvel Legends figure, and it's a repaint with a new head of the Punk Storm Marvel Legends Oh, is it really? Okay. They're wearing the same outfit. Callisto just wears an orange tube top instead of a black one. I'm very curious about the different back patches either of those women will put on their respective punk vests. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm forgetting who on the Discord so kindly did the eye patch over the Amoebix logo and No Gods, No Masters the, that's on the cover of Amoebix's legendary. That was great. Record. I forget who it was also. Sorry, but you know who you are. Thank you so much. Yes. Tell me when this episode drops and I will, I will sing your praises to the heavens. Really, the next time we see this relationship again is when Kulan Gath turns <laughs> Callisto. Friend of the pod, Kulan Gath. In the Kulan But Gath you're skipping it. ahead. You're skipping ahead. Oh, sorry. Okay, go ahead. Okay. First, we need to talk about 176 to 179, which is the arc where they kidnap Kitty and try to force her to marry Caliban because she promised she would in the first yes, arc. Yes, and then Caliban, who's like about as broken like a person as you can imagine. He's desperate for a genuine connection to feel loved, and he doesn't have any idea how, to the point where he's kidnapping and, should his plan succeed, sexually assaulting the teenage Kitty Pride. He's past the point of recognizing what he's doing, and it's from this place of brokenness 
a lifetime of being told he's a vile being. This is, again, like a weird thing. Like Callisto terrorizing this teenage girl and trying to force her to marry this guy is weird. It's just a weird story. And this is the last Morlocks as predatory weirdos story. It just never happens again. And in part, it's because of the way this scene goes down, which is that Kitty insists to the X-Men, you know, she gave her word. She has to do what she said she would do. And it is Caliban who says, if she doesn't actually want to marry me, then she shouldn't. He breaks the game, basically, that Callisto's been playing. The performance art piece of, like, we're messing with these X-Men because fuck them. Once Caliban says, but does she actually love me? Like, once he makes the stakes of it actually human, the cartooniness of it kind of falls apart. And after that, the Morlocks are much more substantive as a group of characters, as a political movement, as all of these other things that you illustrate at the beginning of the episode. It is notable that it seemed like Kitty and Caliban were going to be much more connected characters overall. There was talk of him having a more major role in the franchise at one point. Most overtly, the code name that Kitty takes after this storyline, Ariel, is a direct partnership to Caliban. Those are two characters from The Tempest by Shakespeare. So her becoming the spirit of the air from The Tempest versus the creature of the earth from The Tempest. Those are parallel characters. That doesn't really go anywhere is the thing. And she notably doesn't keep the Ariel code name for very long. But I do think it seems like something was set up here that doesn't quite come to fruition. Is Callisto's name from The Tempest or is that from a different Shakespeare? No. I was, t- I was too lazy to Google this. Callisto's Greek mythology. Oh, okay. Well, oh, so right in your wheelhouse. Yeah, I mean, I'll get into that in a... In a bit. We'll get into that for sure. Okay. <laughs> I think you've said everything that needs to be said about Caliban, that arc, and, and what it represents in, in story history. The Kulan Gath stuff is real wild. This is the real pivot point, is the story arc where friend of the pod, Kulan Gath, transforms <laughs> Manhattan into Conan times. This is when Callisto and Storm have their first real like buddy movie moment. It's a lot of fun. In the reality warp that Kulan Gath creates, Callisto is captain of his guard. And Storm is a sorceress who she's tracked with hunting down. The thing that we also have to recognize is that, like, Kulan Gath makes Callisto into Red Sonia. Yeah, she's in, like, a sexy bikini barbarian outfit. And literally rips Storm's bodice. Yeah, she does. She does do that, yes. <laughs> But like where we get in Kulan Gath and the reason why this is important for the characters is that like together they learn that like first Callisto accepts Storm's rule of the Morlocks and is no longer going to challenge her for it. They develop this respect and also it's very clear. You know, I think it's kind of clear in the fight where like Storm looks at Callisto like lunch and Callisto looks at Storm like a snack. Mm -hmm. But like in Kulan Goth especially, you see that there is a real sexual chemistry between them. Absolutely. This is after Storm's adventure in Japan with Yukio. It's after Storm has taken on the punk look. Most notably, it's after Storm has lost her powers, which I think is critical here because what happens is Callisto is hunting Storm and they fall into the harbor 
and they end up washing out of the boundaries of the reality warp and become themselves suddenly again. They get captured by the government operatives that Valerie Cooper is directing. They escape from them and make their way back in. But Callisto is aggravated by the fact that Storm has been depowered. Callisto doesn't want to win back leadership of the Morlocks unless Storm is at the peak of her physical capabilities. So that's why they kind of put a pause on it ostensibly. Is Callisto's like, well, then it wouldn't be fair for me to fight you again. So I guess you're in charge. But it's also very clearly like, we're vibing. So I'm going to see how this plays out, right? Like that is sort of the energy I get from it. And they end up being really essential working together to defeating Kulangath. Because they go back in together and become their fantasy selves again. But now they have like a connection. The Greek mythology aspect, and this is worth, I guess, getting into now a little bit because there is a hunting arc here. Callisto is one of the nymphs of Artemis in Greek mythology. Mm. So also a very lesbian thing. In fact, Callisto's story is that she outrages Artemis by coupling with Zeus. So she's cast out of the lesbian nymph squad that wanders around with Artemis in the forest and she gets turned into a bear. She becomes in the end the constellation Ursa Major, the Big Dipper. Mm. So specifically she is a beautiful woman who was in an intimate relationship with the virgin goddess of the hunt and was tempted by a man, by a patriarch, fell from grace and was turned into an animal. I don't know what exactly Claremont <laughs> is evoking there, but it's interesting. There are vague implications throughout that Callisto sought out the Morlocks and left society because of something men did to her on the surface. So I think that's maybe the subtext there a little bit. We learn randomly she's from Missouri. We never know what happened to her or or what took place there. But later on... It is established, it is canon. This is in Excalibur, volume two, number seven. Claremont, when he comes back to that book, says she's from Missouri. We never learn anything else as far as I'm aware. Callisto is the mother bear because she and Zeus have a child who becomes Ursa Minor. Her name also, though, means the most beautiful one. Well, I mean, the etymology of Callisto is a little unclear, but Callisti or Calliste means for the most beautiful, which is what was written on the golden apple that Eris, the goddess of discord, threw into the wedding of Peleus and Thetis and caused the fight between Athena, Hera, and Aphrodite that precipitated the Trojan War. So the word Kalisti, Kaliste, Kalisto, has a lot of weight to it and is specifically about beauty. It's interesting because Presumably, this isn't her actual name, right? It's a name that she's taken for herself. It's a street name. It's a mutant name. The fact that she's chosen a name that means beautiful, but that also means a woman transformed into an animal, into a hunter, is, I think, 
relevant, resonant. I think it works on a lot of levels. It says a lot about her character. It also indicates to us that she is well-educated, which is an interesting thing about Callisto. I mean, in that first scene when she says, we call ourselves the Morlocks after the characters from the H.G. Wells story. I mean, like, that is interesting because, I mean, that's Claremont's dialogue that's expository about sci-fi classics. Like, he just <laughs> does that. Like, Sam Guthrie and Kitty Pride are always dropping in references to classic sci-fi novels explicitly and saying like, wow, this is just like what happened in that Heinlein novel or whatever. But in this case, it's also something I think we should view as a characterizing element because we know so little about Callisto's backstory, but the idea that she's educated enough to have read the time machine and also to be familiar enough with Greek mythology to choose an ironic sobriquet, I think mm. is meant to illustrate to us that while she is in this impoverished milieu, she perhaps came from a slightly different background. After the Kulan Gath arc, the next Callisto story is a couple issues later, which is 193. I know that you have a lot to say about this issue. This is the one where Grey Crow murders Adelie's children. Yes, and in addition to that foreshadowing of the mutant massacre, this scene is important because it's like a really good Charles Xavier is confronted with reality mm -hmm. situation. Like we wake up, Xavier is in an unfamiliar place in the Morlock tunnels. He's never been there before. And he looks up at a smiling Callisto who has dressed him in bondage gear. <laughs> yes, <What? laughs> this is a very Chris Claremont moment of like, I wake up in BDSM regalia. That is something that happens a lot in Chris Claremont stories. It is amazing because like the dialogue has Charles saying, good grief, woman, what have you done to me? But the art that J.R.J.R. draws is like, oh, all right. I ah, I'm into this. It's like, oh, this. so this is that catalog in Eric's room. Yeah, exactly. Callisto explains to Charles that she, through Hewer, has saved his life. She has, in the tunnels, nursed him back to health and warns him against, like, overexertion. Charles is kind of astounded by this because now he's only heard about the Morlocks from Storm and the X-Men who are there. First off, one of the things he notices is that the Morlock tunnels are enormous. And Callisto explains that this warren of underground tunnels like runs through to Staten Island. It gets like near like 40 miles north of Manhattan where um, the X-Men's mansion is supposed to be. Yeah, it goes all the way up to Westchester, which is crazy if you know anything about the geography yeah. of New York. <laughs> like basically that's the distance between, so it's 40 miles. So that's the distance between Baltimore and Washington, D.C. Let me be clear, the infrastructure beneath New York City is not actually this good. Definitely but I not. wish that it was. <laughs> but the importance of that is because like Xavier is now suddenly realizing that right literally under his nose is this enormous community of mutants that he has no interaction with at all. And somehow never found with Cerebro. He's sort of like taking a tour. He gets a crash course in Morlock politics because at this point in character history, Storm is depowered. Mm -hmm. When Callisto explains that Storm lawfully holds the title of the ruler of the Morlocks, Charles can't really understand that. Until Callisto explains, like, unfortunately, but fairly, Storm 
took over by our own rules. And now I am sworn, this is a great moment, even though Storm isn't here in the Storm-Callisto relationship, because like Callisto yells out to anyone who wants to hear, if you challenge Storm, you have to go through it. Yes, that's their relationship forever going forward, honestly. She goes from being Storm's like rival to being Storm's ultimate simp for the next like 30 (laughs) years of publication. And I love that for them. And can I not wait to talk about the arc where that like really... In extreme? Yeah, we'll get there. Yeah, anyway. Okay, so that's when, as Charles is like learning on this like essentially like poverty walking tour, that's (laughs) when Sunder... And he's like saying all these things like basically like out loud. It's just a kind of deft literalization of like, from a class perspective, how Xavier is not really prepared to understand what he's seeing. Have you had a chance yet to read X Lives Wolverine number one, which just came out this week? Oh, have I? I don't want to get into it because people may not have read it yet, but it's a pretty strong demonstration of just how class isolated the Xavier family has been for hundreds of years. I think that this is where a lot of that does feel like it gets seen. He is astounded by the existence of poor people. Yeah, it's really a wonderful <laughs> issue. <laughs> so as Xavier is is kind of like grasping at what the Morlocks are and what this all means, Sunder comes running in with the Morlock empaths, Annalise, dead children, talking about how they have been murdered in cold blood. And Callisto turns to Xavier and gives a pretty character-defining exposition. Although we don't know it at this point, and she certainly doesn't know it, she's actually wrong here. Like, this is an instance in which this wasn't humans. Correct. It was mutants attacking them, but she doesn't know She doesn't know that yet, and this is their experience, and this is the importance of that lesson, even though it's not Although it foreshadows Mutant Massacre, it's not actually a lesson about the Mutant Massacre. So Callisto turns to Xavier, and it's a great panel. Her at her most Patty Smith looking. J.R.J.R.'s Callisto just is Patty it Smith. Fucks. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. And she says, see, Xavier, see, that's the reality of a mutant's existence. We'll always be targets, even babies who never did anyone harm. I gave my word to Aurora. Morlocks will coexist with humanity in peace. But if they won't leave us alone, if they start hunting us, if they want a race war, then by all I hold holy, they'll get one. And this is Callisto explaining to Xavier, all they have in this world is down there in those tunnels with them. There will always be an external threat as proven by the fact that they're down in those tunnels, and implicitly, people like Xavier don't see them. Well, that's the Gail Jones thing you're talking about, right? Is that, like, these communities that come together under profound oppression become an apparatus unto themselves that people outside the community just don't understand and don't respect. And from a perspective of how the inside and outside communities relate, there's always a danger when a community like the Morlocks opens up, that it will be for ultimately their exploitation and possibly their death. It is an act of bravery that Callisto has taken, an assertion of like the dignity and the decency of who she is and what her mission is, that she's allowed Charles Xavier in this tunnel at all when she is under no obligation to help him. No, she would have let him die except that she knows he's important to Storm. It is one of those moments that like 
brings out, and we I think this is a, a segue into Massacre, exactly what the Morlock challenge is to the X-Men. Because the Morlock challenge to the X-Men is the challenge of the X-Men to the Avengers and the, the other non-mutant, you know, sort of status quo superheroes of the Marvel Universe. As long as mutants are hunted, vivisected, enslaved, exploited, and so forth, the existence of, like, a superpower apparatus like the Avengers is shamed and called into question. It's, it's a difficult thing in a shared publishing universe in which, mm-hmm. you know, a whole lot of these IP have to be, like, formally coded as heroic. But now we see, really, in, in just, like, a, in, an economical few pages in Uncanny 193, how that's exactly the challenge of the Morlocks to the X-Men. And it's an exceptionally destabilizing thing in the context of this book. I think in a tremendously important way, but as it turns out, in a way that rebels against kind of the editorial necessities of the book. Mm -hmm. And apparently, as you've said, that's one of the reasons Chris Claremont has explained the mutant massacre. Claremont's also said that he believes the big mistake that Grant Morrison made was expanding the school and making it public. So it just shows a a difference of political approach. I had a conversation with Chris Claremont about Krakoa. I promised I was going to make it a bonus episode, and then I got too swept up in editing the regular episodes to do a bonus. I will try to remember enough of it to talk about it in an upcoming bonus, but we talked for about 45 minutes, and he is just very much not into separatism. It's just not his thing, you know? So the integration aspect of these stories is a big part of his politic. And the Morlocks are an interesting aberration because he creates them as these villains, but they very rapidly become sympathetic because how could they not be? And then you have to get rid of them because they indict the entire premise of the X-Men by their existence. And, and I wonder, just riffing off your explanation of Claremont's explanation, if that isn't that tension isn't also one of the reasons that the Morlock's presentation narratively is so like wildly divergent, even in his own run, his first run as well as his second run. Well, it's I think the thing about Magneto also is that like, I feel like some of Claremont's most interesting characters are characters who are in tension with his own politics. Yes. At the risk of overanalyzing the author, which I don't think is necessarily, you know, that fruitful, I do think that that is interesting because you can feel him in dialogue with the characters. Magneto is the ultimate separatist, and part of what Claremont does is force him to learn the benefits of integration, right? Like that is the that is him leading the new mutants. That's all of that stuff. But there's a reason that these political arguments people make to Xavier, like Callisto and Magneto, feel very strong. And that's because Claremont is a very bold writer. And even if it's not his position, he makes the opposition as powerful and as compelling as he can. I think a problem that a lot of political comics have is that they get didactic in the sense that the villains are ridiculous or the people who are opposed to the core message of the comic are ridiculous. Claremont's separatist characters are never ridiculous. They always have a very well thought out political science based argument for exactly why they believe the things that they believe. And I think that's why in a Krakoa era, for example, where the question of separatism has become 
much more open, those characters are really, really useful and interesting players because the groundwork was laid here because they were a disloyal opposition to the writer. Like the writer did not cut off his ideological opponents at the knees, which I think is bold writing. Now, I know you haven't read the script for my first issue of Suicide Squad, but did you have to call me out so hard? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you've got several more issues if you no, want no, to no, 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 no. course correct. Uh, this, I'm, this, kidding, this, I'm kidding. This I'm kidding. Suicide Squad. Suicide Squad, though, is also different in tone. It's much more like overtly satirical. You know what I mean? I'm just having fun, right? No, no, no I know. <laughs> but um, in all seriousness, just this is one of the reasons why Chris Claremont is a great writer. Yeah, like a truly great writer. Yeah, that what you want, particularly when I think you are making political or, shall we say, ideological comics, to not, you know, slip into sort of vulgar propaganda as opposed to elegant propaganda. You want to have these characters be real to themselves and have them contend in important and real ways. I think even his most extreme, loathsome ideological opponent character, which would be William Stryker, is rendered in God Loves, Man Kills as a very real and scary because he's real character. Yes, very recognizable. Yeah, like, oh, that's a real guy. Senator Kelly is a character who you absolutely understand. Valerie Cooper, who's absolutely an antagonist in the Claremont run, she lays out exactly why she believes what she believes, and her position is not unreasonable. We just know it to be wrong. We certainly know it to be familiar. But if you're looking at it from her perspective, which is, I'm running the security apparatus here, yeah, mutants are a big problem. What do you do about that is the question, right? Like, and she goes about doing things that I obviously do not agree with. I'm just saying these characters are all really well thought out. So the Annalise story there leads into a power pack story. She's an empath. You may remember her from the cartoon. If you're a cartoon viewer, she ensorcels Jean in like a really famous scene that's been memed a lot. Point is, she mind controls, hypnotizes people, basically. So she tries to hypnotize the Power Pack kids into becoming her new children. The X-Men are distressed by that. And Callisto is annoyed. She's like, listen, Annalie, we are going to get revenge. We are going to get justice for your children. But you can't break Morlock Law or I'm going to have to kick you out. And Morlock Law, now that Storm is in charge, is we cannot attack surface dwellers. So you have to not do this again. And Annalie's like, I get it, I get it, I get it. I mean, look, Annalie is is innocent here. Annalie is an empath. (laughs) She's grieving in an unimaginable way. I have children. You know, it's hard hard to read this stuff at times. This is the kind of stuff that you don't see as much in comics now. Like, just we're going to machine gun some children to death. Oh, are we about, I mean, this whole episode, especially when we get to Tentacle Callisto, is stuff you'll never see. Is stuff you're not going (laughs) to see in many corporate comics anymore. I think actually that this is a good moment to pause for the Cerebro character file on Callisto. I will take you through her full publication history from Uncanny X-Men 169 up through Marauders in the Krakoa era. And then we will come back for more with Spencer Ackerman as we dive into the most iconic Callisto story and one of the most iconic X-Men stories, period, 1986's Mutant Massacre. We'll be right back. X-Men, X-Men. Hey everybody, we're doing things a little differently today because I'm excited as Connor Goldsmith, your host, to tell you about the podcast's extraordinary new sponsor, Marvel Strike Force. 
Marvel Strike Force is an incredible mobile game, every comic fan's dream. In this Mobile Squad RPG, you can assemble a team of your favorite superheroes and supervillains, like Dr. Lorna Dane and the iconic Madeline Jennifer Pryor, to save the universe from cosmic threats like Apocalypse and Doctor Doom. Power up your favorite Marvel characters to complete missions, unlock special gear and other resources, and battle other Marvel fans in PvP modes like Alliance War in the real-time arena. Right now, Marvel Strike Force is celebrating their six-year anniversary with a special Deadpool event, and you can sign up using my unique link available right now in the description of every episode. You'll get free stuff in the game just for signing up through this promotion, with weekly bonuses and events all through this anniversary storyline. Log in every day to get special skins, rewards, and the brand new characters being released to celebrate six years of Marvel Strike Force. This is the game's most generous event to date, and I, for one, can't wait to see all the goodies I can unlock. This promo code works for every new user. Please follow the unique link in this episode description to download Marvel Strike Force so they'll know I sent you. Use the promo code MAXPOOL. That's M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Have a blast with this immersive Marvel experience. Thanks to Marvel Entertainment and the team at Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. We now return you to the show. X-Men, X-Men. The woman known only as Callisto is a recurring X-Men character who debuted as a villain before becoming one of the hero's most reliable allies. The leader of the Morlocks, a society of non-passing mutants living in poverty in the maintenance tunnels beneath Manhattan, Callisto becomes the eager rival to Storm, leader of the X-Men. But their relationship deepens after Storm defeats her in battle and takes leadership of the Morlocks as well. In the present, after becoming a citizen of Krakoa, Callisto serves as the White Knight of the Hellfire Trading Company, appearing as a regular character in Jerry Duggan's run on the ongoing title Marauders. Callisto first appears in 1983's Uncanny X-Men 169 by Chris Claremont and Paul Smith, in which she and her Morlocks kidnap Warren Worthington III, the former X-Man Angel, and bring him down to the sewers to force him to marry Callisto and serve as her consort. When the X-Men come to his rescue, they are overwhelmed and captured themselves, but kept alive. Callisto intends to make them watch her wedding to Warren. In the end, Storm secures their freedom by agreeing to a leadership duel without the use of her mutant powers. Despite a high fever induced by the Morlock woman called Plague, Storm defeats Callisto, stabbing the Morlock leader in the heart with her own knife, much to the shock of the X-Men, who knew Storm had sworn never to kill. While Callisto's life is saved by the Morlock called Healer, she's forced to cede leadership to Storm per Morlock law. She vows she will defeat Storm and reclaim her rightful place. Some issues later, she conspires with the Morlock Caliban, who had betrayed the Morlocks out of love for Kitty Pride, only for her to renege on her promise to stay with him in the tunnels. Callisto kidnaps Kitty, leaving a corpse in her place and using the flesh-shaping powers of the Morlock called Mask to make the body look like Kitty. When the X-Men arrive to stop the wedding of Kitty and Caliban, Kitty insists she must be true to her word, and that the Morlocks have promised to heal her beloved, Colossus, who was grievously injured in a battle with Mystique's Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. After Colossus is healed, Caliban, realizing Kitty does not truly love him, asks Callisto to let her and the other X-Men go. The following year, in 1985, a friend of the pod, Kulan Gath, mystically transforms all Manhattan into Conan times, brainwashing all the borough's inhabitants into fantasy characters. The Morlocks become the evil wizard's guards, with Callisto as his captain, and he tasks her with apprehending Storm. Callisto hunts Storm until they accidentally pass through the barrier, becoming their true selves once more, and Storm rescues Callisto when she nearly drowns. When Callisto learns that Storm has recently been depowered by human agents of the government, see the Storm episode for more on that, she declares she only wants to win back leadership of the Morlocks when Storm is at full strength. They work together to play a key role in the defeat of Kulan Gath, forging a mutual respect. Notably, during this arc, the new mutant Danny Moonstar, a.k.a. Mirage, is able to determine Callisto's greatest fear. 
the beautiful woman she once was, before whatever incident on the surface scarred her face and took one of her eyes. Shortly thereafter, Charles Xavier is beaten nearly to death by a mob of anti-mutant college students. He's rescued by the Morlocks, who bring him to Callisto and Healer. Callisto dresses Charles up in bondage gear because this is a Chris Claremont story. While she's giving Xavier a tour of the Morlock tunnels and a crash course on Morlock culture, she's aghast to learn that the Morlock Annalee has suffered a tragic loss. Her children have been viciously murdered. In a crossover with Power Pack, the empathic Annalee attempts to hypnotize the Power Pack children into becoming her new babies. Callisto promises Annalee she'll get revenge for the murdered children, but insists she release Power Pack and follow Storm's edict not to attack surface dwellers. In the 1986 franchise-wide event Mutant Massacre, the first X-Men crossover of its kind, the Morlock Tunnels are invaded by a group of mutant mercenaries called the Marauders, who begin exterminating everyone they find. Their leader, John Greycrow, called Scalp Hunter, brags to Annalee that he killed her children himself, and then butchers her and the other children she's protecting. When the X-Men arrive as backup, they manage to drive the Marauders away, but Nightcrawler, Shadowcat, and Colossus are all badly injured. They're taken with the surviving Morlocks to the Xavier School, where the X-Men's allies Moira McTaggart and Sharon Friedlander establish a makeshift hospital. Storm blames herself for the genocide of the Morlocks and the potentially mortal wounds suffered by her friends, and ends up fleeing the mansion in psychological distress. Callisto stalks after her and violently forces her to face her insecurities. Storm realizes Callisto is right, and Callisto tells Storm she's come to respect her. She will therefore ensure Storm remains worthy to lead what remains of the Morlocks. After the tunnels are scoured clean by Thor's lightning, leaving nothing for Callisto and the surviving Morlocks to bury, they accompany Moira McTaggart to her facility on Muir Island, where they will hopefully be well hidden from the Marauders. Callisto decides to become Moira's personal bodyguard and falls into the background of the franchise for a time. After the apparent death of the X-Men in the 1988 franchise-wide event Fall of the Mutants, Callisto makes an appearance in Excalibur, briefly winding up on Nazi Earth when she and Moira get swapped with their Nazi Earth doubles. Once they're back on Earth 616, Callisto and Moira wind up in a very odd Marvel Comics Presents story written by Bob Harris, where Moira is brainwashed by the Sentinel Master Mold into creating a mutant-killing virus. Callisto teams up with Cyclops to free Moira and battle Master Mold's forces while Moira creates an antidote. Despite being infected themselves, Callisto and Cyclops fight valiantly and manage to hold their enemies off just long enough for Moira to synthesize a cure. Back in the pages of Uncanny X-Men, Moira becomes concerned about Magneto, who's grown closer with the Hellfire Club after being abandoned by his students, the New Mutants. Moira dispatches Callisto to lock down the Xavier School's underground levels, preventing Magneto from accessing them in the future. While she's carrying out this task, Callisto is captured by the surviving Morlocks, who are now led more ruthlessly by Mask. Mask wants access to the X-Mansion, but Callisto refuses to give him the password. The Flesh Shaper punishes her by doing what he knows will most traumatize her. He makes her outstandingly beautiful and takes away her physical strength. His ally Bliss also psychically weakens her free will, and she's forced to become a supermodel. During a brief escape, she encounters Colossus, now living as the amnesiac artist Peter Nicholas, after passing through the Siege Perilous. Don't worry about it right now. Peter is immediately taken with Callisto's beauty and ends up rescuing her from a street gang. Callisto and Peter fall in love, and Peter insists he loves her even after Mask temporarily shows him her true appearance. After Mask is defeated by the X-Men, Callisto, still trapped in the supermodel form she hates, decides to try to start anew with Peter at her side. This is around when Chris Claremont exits the franchise after 16 years as its chief architect, and under new writer Scott Lobdell, the Callisto storyline immediately veers way off course. Colossus has his memories restored and returns to the X-Men. Callisto, meanwhile, is approached to her home by Healer, who begs for her help now that Mask has been killed in the pages of X-Force. Callisto refuses to return to leadership of the Morlocks, leading to an attack on her by her former subjects. Healer decides to, well, heal her, 
He uses the last of his strength to cure her wounds, but also undoes mass manipulations of her face and body, restoring her to her old, ugly appearance. Driven crazy at the loss of her beauty, Callisto vows to wipe out the Morlocks herself. Teaming up with Colossus's long-lost brother, Mikhail Rasputin, a powerful reality-warping mutant, Callisto compels him to flood the tunnels, apparently killing the Morlocks, Callisto, and himself. This story sucks. Three years later, we learn that the Morlocks were actually transported by Mikhail to an alternate dimension called The Hill, where Mikhail went crazy and spent years forcing the Morlocks to fight their way up the mountain to his citadel, killing all in their way in order to prove themselves worthy of being his subjects. Callisto did her best to help the Morlocks survive and adopted a little Morlock girl named Sarah, who grew into the warrior Marrow. Check out the episode on Sarah with Steve Orlando for more on this storyline, which is not very good. Callisto returns to Earth in an effort to stop Marrow and her comrades, the terrorist Gene Nation, from slaughtering humans in Manhattan as vengeance for the mutant massacre. While a decade had passed on the hill, only a few months have passed on Earth in a development that is basically a ripoff of the magic storyline from the 80s. Callisto seeks out Colossus and gets his help contacting the X-Men, and she and Storm team up to track down Gene Nation. In the end, Storm rips out Marrow's heart, apparently killing her. Callisto returns to the hill, where she turns against Mikhail in a Storm miniseries by Warren Ellis and Terry Dodson that is honestly not worth worrying about. Storm ends up kidnapped to the hill by Mikhail, who wants to make her his queen, because that's what villains love to do with Storm. After Storm manages to get all the Morlocks back to Earth, Callisto challenges her for leadership again, but Storm easily defeats her with lightning. Callisto's gun explodes, scarring her face back to the condition from her early appearances. She runs away back to the tunnels, where she's helped by Marrow, who it turns out survived because she has a second mutant heart. Callisto and Marrow do some terrorism for a while because Callisto believes a race war against mutant kind is coming. Sure enough, Operation Zero Tolerance pops off, and Callisto ends up taking a sentinel blast meant for Marrow. She spends the next few years of publication lurking in the tunnels, tended by Marrow, and insists Marrow join the X-Men and make something productive out of her life. Callisto's wounds simply won't heal, and when she's close to death, the Dark Beast arrives and makes a bargain with her to save her life. Callisto agrees, but cuts Marrow off in order to protect her from the Dark Beast. None of this will ever come up again, so do not worry about it. Five years later, Callisto reappears in Chris Claremont's Extreme X-Men, starring in the infamous Arena arc. Captured by Mask, Callisto has been forced to become a gladiator in an underground mutant fighting ring in Japan. Also, she has tentacles now. Callisto eventually teams up with Storm, Yukio, and Strong Guy to defeat Mask and liberate all the mutant gladiators. Mask, desperate, offers to apologize by making Callisto perfect. But Callisto believes she already is perfect, and has grown to love her tentacles. After the end of Extreme X-Men, Callisto pivots into Claremont's new volume of Excalibur, where she joins forces with Xavier and Magneto to rebuild the devastated island of Genosha, and becomes an essential part of their team. She reunites with her old captive Angel when she helps him battle Viper in Zanzibar, winning his respect when he sees the hero she has become. After the 2005 Decimation, in which all but about 200 mutants worldwide are depowered by the Scarlet Witch, Callisto finds herself as one of the majority of mutants who have been turned human. Her superhuman senses and her tentacles suddenly gone, Callisto sinks into a depression. In the miniseries Son of M by David Hine and Royal and Martinez, she offers herself as a guinea pig when Quicksilver attempts to use the Terrigen Mist to repower decimated mutants. The treatment works, but it works too well, and Callisto is driven mad by her now overwhelming superhuman senses. Her brain overloads, and she falls into a coma. The following year, she resurfaces in the pages of X-Factor Investigations, alongside the also-decimated Marrow, now part of a terrorist group of decimated mutants called X-Cell. Callisto ends up convincing Marrow not to trust Quicksilver, which proves good advice when more mutants Quicksilver is treated with his Terrigen crystals start spontaneously combusting. 
Seven years later, Callisto returns in the 2014 Storm solo series by Greg Pak and Victor Ibanez, where we see she's been protecting teenage runaways in the old Morlock tunnels. Two years after that, as the Inhumans vs. X-Men era ramps up amid the M-Pox crisis, Callisto welcomes mutants and humans alike to the tunnels, calling these integrated refugees the new Morlocks. Another two years later, she makes a cameo as a prisoner in X-Men Gold, but don't worry about it, because in the 2019 soft reboot House of X and Powers of Ten by writer Jonathan Hickman, Callisto is one of countless mutants to become a citizen of the new mutant sovereign nation on the living island Krakoa. She's one of many former villains invited to accept Krakoan citizenship and responsibilities in exchange for amnesty from past crimes, and is quickly invited by Emma Frost to become part of the Hellfire Trading Company. As White Knight, Emma's personal attaché and enforcer, Callisto begins working for Kate Pride's new crew, called the Marauders, in a reclamatory gesture Callisto respects. Having made peace with Mass, Callisto helps the Morlocks who refuse to join Krakoan society establish a new home in Madripoor's Lowtown, and, longing for the return of her mutant powers, convinces Storm to kill her in the Krakoan ritual combat called the Crucible. Granted a painless death by Storm, the great rival and great love of her life, Callisto is resurrected by the power of the Five with her powers restored, and once again sees the world with one brilliant mutant eye. X-Men, X-Men. I hope you enjoyed that, particularly the tentacle period. We're going to get into that. Don't worry about it. For now, Spencer, how are you doing? I know that before we get into Massacre, you want to talk about some of the real-world socio-political circumstances of the early to mid-80s in New York. Yes. So as someone who grew up in New York City in the 1980s, I think it's important to just step back for a moment and talk about how the Morlocks come out of a particular place and time. New York in the 1980s, particularly around 1986, when this story gets published, is starting to feel like a synecdoche for like menace, decline, and encroaching racialized terror across the like entire United States, like in the mind of the of, of like more and more mainstream America by 1986. Like this is what you see in, you know, the portrayal in New York City by kind of the broader culture. Eventually you'll see this really elegantly in Bonfire of the Vanities. You see this already in things like the Charles Bronson Death Wish movies and so forth. That like people who come from the tunnels of New York, the depths of New York, are these depraved dangers to good, polite, you know, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, white people Mm -hmm. in New York. And like, you are to be afraid of these people. What work that accomplishes is in completely diverting attention from what has caused all of these people in New York to live in such a way where I think something like five or six years into the Volcker shock at this point, which is when inflation is crushed by the Federal Reserve by basically like raising interest rates to insane levels. This contributes to the divorce, so to speak, between like manufacturing and essentially capital that like financialization is becoming the way that capital accumulates itself and essentially means that we're like in a moment of takeoff in terms of class divide beyond anything we've seen in the United States in decades, and we, in 2022, are really seeing where this has led. Absolutely. This is the thing that in New York City, particularly, the city went bankrupt in the 1970s. The federal government has to provide a ton for people in New York. Think about how much public housing 
there is here. Still not enough, but... <laughs> Still not enough, but like this is this is also the Reagan era. Reagan is selling off state assets. He is refusing to fund things that he doesn't sell off. Homelessness skyrockets in the United States. Like this is a, a point where we really start to see a forerunner of broader trends that we really as live in right now where... I grew up in a New York where there was still a middle class. Right. This is a moment in history where that it's the beginning of the end for that. It's when that starts to disintegrate and wealth inequality in New York City begins to truly skyrocket. To skyrocket. And as we mentioned, the response to all of this is to blame the people who are its structural victims. Right. By like this point in New York City history, the response to it that's being demanded by civilized society is overwhelmingly carceral. Essentially, a massive criminalization of poverty in New York. Reagan defunds mental health centers. A lot of these people end up going on the streets. So people who are in like really deep need get absolutely nothing. And this is kind of the milieu that Claremont is drawing from in creating the Morlocks, oftentimes without the kind of intentionality, shall we say, of like the fullness of what the Morlocks are. But like what we start seeing as we meet the Morlocks more and more, they have, as we mentioned, the society they form, the dignity, the structures they rely upon and so forth under threat from the outsiders when as the outsiders by both like the structure of the X-Men story and us as readers, we realize that like they aren't the problem. We're the problem. Yes. And right as we start really seeing that, that's when the mutant massacre happens. That's when Claremont wipes them out. Yeah, because they're making it too complicated. The massacre in rereading all of these issues in there, they're hard to read at times. Yeah, so Mutant Massacre begins in Uncanny X-Men 210 with the story that we've already talked about a little bit where Tommy, the Morlock, she's like a teenager who is very beautiful, but because she is beautiful in a specific way, which is she's a visible mutant, she's on the run and she's been a Morlock, you know? It tracks her and this Hellfire Club guard who has maybe fallen in love with her, not entirely clear like what their relationship is, but he's been trying to help her escape. They have gone all the way across the country to LA. The Marauders hunt her down and Harpoon gets her in the back and it's this really incredible panel of like, when Harpoon's energy spear hits you, you kind of have like light coming out of your eyes and mouth. It's like really upsetting. It's like your soul escaping. Yeah, and she's on the ground like begging them to stop and Grey Crow just walks up and blows her away with a machine gun. And that's the issue. It's like one of the most horrible things. I I'm Certainly when I was a kid and I read it, I was devastated by it. Yeah, I, it's... This is this is really like the moment where like I think Uncanny X-Men through to Fall of the Mutants becomes like a scary book. This is where it becomes the best superhero comic ever to me. Oh, like unquestionable. Like these issues, all everything we're we're going to discuss here in, in these issues is just absolutely classic defining X-Men stuff, but also is a moment where like the X-Men is a really bleak book. All the way up through Siege Perilous from here on out, it's pretty dark. So there's kind of like a forecourt area of the Morlock tunnels where a bunch of Morlocks are having dinner. 
what we see in like one quick John Romita and Brett Blevins panel, it's a nice seating area. Like these are unhoused people who like when they find a place that they can live, like do the things to make it a livable space. Like these guys are squatters. Right. If like you've ever seen a show at Sea Squat or you've been to ABC in a Rio, like this is like that vibe entirely. And it's horrific to watch Grey Crow do his like weapons transformation out of his body thing and absolutely murder them all without a second thought. One like big guy who looks like a wrestler decides like, you know, screw like uh, now I have to kill you because of what you're doing. And he's like, you're mutants. Why are you doing this? And they're just like, it's our job, dude. Yeah. And that is, I've mentioned a couple of times before on the show. One of the things that's most compelling to me about the Marauders is the way that Claremont and I, I just, I don't know. Again, we, the intentionality is never entirely clear, but I think he's a very intuitive writer. Often, even if something wasn't intended, like you, you get something. The fact that the Marauders are mostly made up of people whose cultures have been victims of genocide is very, very interesting to me. The fact that Grey Crow is Native American, the fact that Harpoon is Inuit, Scrambler is Korean. Korean right. Arclight is presumably Jewish. Her last name is Sontag. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, oh yeah, Philippa Sontag. Now, I'm that I'd have to check if that was Claremont or one of the handbooks, because if it was a handbook, then that's not intentional <laughs> on his part. But point is, these characters come from groups that have specifically had genocide visited upon them in the recent past. And yet, they are all people who have decided... I care more about money than about any kind of solidarity in that way and become agents of genocide themselves. And it feels like very dark, profound social commentary, these mutants who kill other mutants and then also have these intersecting identities on top of them. And yet, unfortunately, none of this is really explicated. No, it's, but that's, that's the thing with so much of these dense Claremont texts to me is like, it's not something that we get deep into, but it's there if you want to look at it. That's yeah, half of exactly. what this show is picking apart the, the onion, you know? One thing that Claremont is very intentional about is showing when one of the escapees from the tunnels, like literally like burrows up from the ground with their dying breath and begs them for help, saying they're all being slaughtered down there, come help. And then Magneto, when they go into the med bay, immediately recognizes that what is happening in the tunnels is a pogrom. Yeah, he says, The horrors of my childhood born again. Only this time, mutants are the victims instead of Jews. And by the way, while that is not, you know, exactly like him saying Om Yisrael Chai, like... That is him saying he's Jewish. He's Jewish, yeah. That's on panel. That's on panel. He's not saying of my childhood temporally. He's saying of my childhood as a Jew. That also makes the mistake that Storm immediately commits all, like, the more painful. Because Storm orders Magneto, a Holocaust survivor, not to go into the tunnels. Their most important weapon that they could possibly have in a circumstance where they're fighting in a place where metal is all around them. Polaris will prove this when she washes the Marauders by herself 
Right, because Polaris in this period, this is also the time period where Polaris is possessed by malice and becomes leader of the Marauders, but not in the initial massacre story. It's all kind of interrelated. So, you know, pour out one on an alternate Earth, we got to watch Magneto kill all of the Marauders <laughs> and save everyone. But yeah, that's unfortunately. Not the, yeah, that's not a good narrative choice, alas. Right, it's not a good narrative choice. So Storm has to be like, Magneto, like, I'm going... Here. You have to watch the well. Someone has to. Someone has to watch the, the mansion. The new mutant. Well, in specifically, like protect the new mutants. So Magneto, the children, right? Magneto is not going to say, "Ah, I should not protect the children." Unfortunately, they need Ilyana to take them into the tunnel. So Storm. Well, that that's you know. Listen, writing. Ilyana is also not a regular child. If we're thinking about like atrocity, like oh no, we don't want the kids to see the genocide. Like Ilyana grew up in hell. She's good. She can go. Okay, if you say. I'm so. not saying. I'm, I, <laughs> I'm saying that's how they're going to justify it to themselves. Sure. They justify that with Ilyana all the time, even though she's literally 15 years old. So in the tunnels, the first thing they see is the carnage beneath them. And the little Jewish child says, oh, Peter, I knew some of these people. They were friends from our point of view character of Kitty Pride. Then it just becomes horrific. You see, you see the X-Men like lose quickly. Like Nightcrawler is brutally maimed. Wolverine, who's having problems with his own powers of course storm is depowered at this point like the x-men are kind of really raw at this point nightcrawler and Shadowcat get their shit rocked which is why they're out of commission leading into fall of the mutants and will then pivot off into excalibur rogue and wolverine who are furious about all of this and angry with themselves because they're the powerhouses of the moment are like shaking with anger and determined to kill the the marauders storm orders a bivouac to save everyone callisto goes along with her but then we see Grey Crow find Annalie. Yes. With children who are not her own, but she is sheltered. She's protecting the Morlock children who are not hers. And Grey Crow, with a grin on his face, murders them. Annalie will live to tell, live just long enough to right. tell. Right, yeah. but first he brags to her that he was the one who killed, killed her children. So the last thing is like this nightmare come to life, the killer of her children. Um, has come for her and, and these other children who are protecting. Callisto finds her dying and holds her. It's awful, yeah. Annalie turns to her and says, Cal, Scalp Hunter, he was one who murdered my baby, said so, boasted. How could anybody be so it's an incredible Tom Orzakowski lettering job. The word cruel disappears into a star. It like faints. It falls. It's a rare time in this point in comics lettering where you start seeing the letterer illustrate. Be an artist in the same way. Orzakowski really changes the yeah. medium, I think, in a lot of ways. I mean, Orzakowski is, like you say, illustrating Annalie dying. Yeah, like he's making, he's visually representing her voice in a way that's really interesting. And Callista says... To some, dear old duffer, that comes naturally. And then it's on. Yeah. This was an adult old woman who was just trying to protect children. Yeah, and like now at this point, it's a very close-in fight. It feels like the term house-to-house house doesn't apply, but like they're fighting in one specific congested tunnel. Yeah. People are fighting for their lives very close in on one another. It's extremely frightening. By the way, one hero, the X-Men who comes out looking the best, 
in not just this Morlock story, but like most of the Morlock stories, Colossus. Well, this is, I, so here's the thing. Whenever people are critical of Colossus, I do understand many criticisms of Colossus, but some of my earliest memories of reading these comics are from the events, Mutant Massacre, Fall of the Mutants, Inferno, in which he is the best guy there is. Certainly when, and we will talk about this Rockdale story. <laughs> so it's just hard yeah. for me to let him go because he's so great in this story. Here's a panel to get fucking tattooed on you. I must be the wall that stands between them and my comrades. It's good stuff. It's, it's fantastic. Anyway. He also is so outraged by the massacre that he kills intentionally. He snaps yeah, he Riptide's Riptide. neck. Yeah. He's, yeah. And, and like without, like... Well, Riptide's like, you're not going to kill me, you're the X-Men, and Klaus is like, like try me, and snaps yeah. his fucking neck, yeah. Yeah, and then and then immediately yells out that Harpoon is next. It's an incredible battle. It's so, it's, I, I yeah, it, mm, Colossus, man. Colossus, it's almost like someone raised with socialist values sees the Morlocks and what they mean and what it means to hunt them more clearly. Sees them as a valuable thing, yeah. This leads into my favorite Callisto scene ever, which is in Uncanny 212. Oh, yeah. The surviving Morlocks, who are rescued by the X-Men, and it's not that many of them, are taken to the mansion where Moira McTaggart and Sharon Friedlander are trying to do, like, emergency triage, but they don't really have the proper equipment. It is a real horrible scene. It's, like, very wartime makeshift hospital. This is the same scenario that I've talked many times on this podcast about the end of Mutant Massacre where Betsy risks her life to defend the dying Morlocks from Sabretooth. This is the setup for all of that because Betsy is manning Cerebro in this. She's new. She just got to the X-Mansion. No one likes her, trusts her particularly. Wolverine tells her to fuck off. Wolverine tells her to go fuck herself when she like gets in his head. And she's like, I, I literally am just, Storm asked me to say something. Like, it's not, <laughs> like, like I, she asked me to contact you. This is the setup for all of that. Aurora is looking at Kitty and Kurt, her friends who have been potentially mortally wounded. Like, we're not sure they're going to pull through. She's looking at the Morlocks, these people she promised she would lead and protect, and the, like, 20 of them that are still alive, most of whom have been maimed or are in critical condition, and it just breaks her. For me, apart from her duel with Cyclops, where she wins leadership of the X-Men, this is the most essential depowered storm scene. Because, as you point out, Magneto would have been the most powerful person to take into the tunnels. But Storm went herself because she's like, it's my responsibility. And if Storm had had her powers, she could have washed the Marauders. Yes. But she didn't. And so she's really just devastated, and eventually she just runs away. She runs out into the woods... She rips off the jacket she's been wearing in her punk look, which is Callisto's vest that she won in the duel. And then Callisto just gives an all-timer. Callisto follows her. I'm just going to read some of this because it's so good. It says, Breakstone Lake, Rogue and Callisto find the vest that Storm has left behind. Callisto says, head back to the mansion, Rogue. I'll find Storm and bring her home. If that's what she really wants. And Rogue says, when you see her, Cal, return this, will you? And hands her the vest. And Callisto says, vest a badge of office. I wore one like it. Aurora won leadership of the Morlocks away from me. Be a real kick if tonight I took the X-Men away from her. But that's not what she's there for. No, it's bravado, right? Yep. 
cut to a house nearby where Storm has pulled a white dress off the linen that's hanging out to dry and has put it on instead of like she's taken off all of her like black leather. I'm the cool girl like who runs the Morlocks and the X-Men gear. She's now this perfect vision in white. And Callisto says, very pretty, but not your style. Rick Leonardi does incredible facial expression work in this issue. Storm is almost childlike in this panel. She looks just devastated. And she says, let me pass, Callisto. Let me go. I have done enough, suffered enough. And Callisto says, not hardly. And Storm says, please let someone else lead the X-Men. You feel that way? Why'd you take the job in the first place? I thought I was needed. Who knows? Perhaps I still am as a grave digger. And she's like, shut your and mouth. Callisto backhands her across the fucking face and says, poor baby. You figure you're the only one who's had it rough? Guess again, Windrider. Open your eyes. We've all been hurt and things will probably get a whole lot worse before it's over. Life for Morlocks and X-Men both will never be the same. But no way will I abandon the ones who are left. I can give no more, Callisto. I have nothing left. They're my people, like the X-Men are yours. They put their trust in us. That makes us obliged to be true to them in return, no matter what. Now, I would like to say one quick thing here. First off, it is amazing that Callisto will not allow Storm to quit. No. You know, this motif will come up again and again in the X-Men. Notice that in this moment of anger, in this moment where it's Callisto who's forcing Storm to see herself and like pull herself together again and be the hero that she is. Callisto never blames Storm for the mutant massacre. Never. No. And I think that's a profound thing. Storm blames herself. Exactly. And that's essential to Storm psychology, I think, up to the present. I think it's what's going on with Araco right now is Storm trying to make up for how she thinks she failed with the Morlocks. That's my read on that whole storyline. That's why she's immersing herself in Araki culture. That's why she is actually embodying the role of their leader and making sure that she hears their concerns. Like that is, she's trying to do it right this time. But Callisto never blames her, ever. Even though we do have like the structural devastation The X-Men structurally devastate the Morlocks, as we've discussed, in a manner similar to how neoliberalism, starting with the Volcker shock in the late 70s and early 80s and the recession that follows, does the same thing to America. Here, we nevertheless see Callisto saying, or at least the only time Callisto does that is as a rhetorical device. Right. To, like force Storm back to her senses. Right. Callisto's chasing Storm through the woods. She, by the way, has put on Storm's jacket, which is, as pointed out here, not literally exactly the vest she won from Callisto, but it's the same style of vest. She's now put on Storm's vest because Storm has abdicated, essentially. She says, you can run from me, Aurora, but what about from yourself? And Storm screams, leave me alone. And she says, make me. My life is my own. I will live it as I please. And then Storm lunges at her and they're going to fight. And Callisto says, "Uh uh-uh, you lost the privilege same as I did the day you donned this vest. And they're now coming to blows. Then we cut to a really heated fight between Sabretooth and Wolverine, where Wolverine defeats Sabretooth and rescues Healer. Very important. That is a real critical moment because once they get Healer back to the mansion, Moira and Sharon aren't quite so overwhelmed in the ICU because Mm -hmm. he can help. 
then we cut back to the lake. I have no right to lead the X-Men. You have no right not to. You punk out. If you rabbit, what's that say to Colossus and Nightcrawler and Shadowcat, the ones who died and the ones still hanging on? If the X-Men, if the dream they and Xavier's school embody aren't worth fighting for, why the blazes did they shed their blood? That's a debt that can't be welshed on. Why do you care about them, about me? I thought you would be happy to see me fall and take my place. Me too. Life's chock full of surprises. And Callisto pulls off the jacket and says, Don't fret, though. We're still rivals. And someday, to take back leadership of the Morlocks, I may well kill you. But I've also come to respect you, Aurora. And she holds out the jacket. And I mean to see you worthy of that respect. And of yourself. And Storm puts the jacket back on over the white dress. This scene rules. And notice that it's also, it's a weather panel. Like the, the panel that Leonardi draws to, to end the scene is storm with like a huge cloud overhead, but it's not like a dense cloud. There's a feeling of hope. Her clothes are, are like moving in the wind. So like the scene is kind of alive. It's a windy moment. There's a thunderstorm also happening while this is all taking place. Later, Claremont will make this part of the reveal that Forge can invent a device that will restore Storm's powers because they are dormant. They were still always kind of there a little bit. There's a potential there. What illustrates it is that Storm, when she and Callisto are fighting, the thunder rages. It's not something she controls, Mm. but it's part of her that no weapon used against her by humans can take away. Lenardi also shows Storm's face in a kind it's a little hard to see on Unlimited, and unfortunately I don't have that issue, but it's a kind of ambiguous expression. Yeah. But it seems in that moment like Callisto has kind of saved Storm. Yeah. You know, take that scene seriously. If Callisto's not there, it seems like Storm was literally running away from the X-Men. Right, and Storm puts the jacket back on emphatically, even if she looks troubled. And then guess what? She steps up and she's an incredible leader for the rest of the event. This great sin for her of not being there with the Morlocks when this happened is just something that haunts her for the rest of her life. I'd like to point out also that Magneto's response to the mutant massacre, for which he has like Storm as an ally, is to say that there is an intermutant fight brewing. He kind of intuits that. And the only acceptable response is through creating new alliances, growing mutant solidarity, and showing strength through joining, in this case, the Hellfire Club. Mm -hmm. And it's just like an excellent Magneto characterization moment. It's one that I think prefigures kind of some of the reaction to the Krakoa era when, you know, Havoc in that era is like, how in the world can you join the, you know, it's bad enough that Magneto's here. Right. But now look what's happening. You're joining the Hellfire Club. Mm-hmm. He was like, could the, you know, the, the X-Men would never, and remember, Xavier is not here for any of this. So you you get Havoc saying, you know, the X-Men would never countenance this. And he's like, I, Storm was right here. Like Storm told me that this is what we were going to do. <laughs> And you weren't here. This is what we have to do to survive. So then the worst part is while they're tending to the wounded back at Xavier's and they've got healers. So that's great. And Callisto has snapped Storm out of her nervous breakdown, basically. I also think one thing I do think is this is something that's not said in the issue, but it's something that I think is there because Claremont is at all times very aware of Storm's psychology. The tunnels 
frighten Storm. Right. Because Storm is claustrophobic. And that's why Storm doesn't spend more time with the Morlocks, right? And so the experience of being in a tunnel with the people she was responsible for dying all around her, it's an immediate the PTSD that she's having in this moment from the incident in her childhood that killed her parents, I think you can't really, like, th that's why it makes sense to me. Like, she just breaks because it's the worst thing you could ever do to Storm is genocide the people she's responsible for all around her in a tunnel. Yeah. Like, that's just hell. That's hell. Callisto, the tunnel dweller, is the one who has to knock her out of it and be like, you need to get outside your head right now. It's that issue, I ship them. In a way that, like, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm generally pretty... You, it won't have to be a ship by the time... No, but you get, get what I'm caliber. saying, because yeah. it's very real. Yeah, I mean, like, my thing is just, like, I'm usually pretty agnostic about pairings in this franchise. Like, I, you know, I'm good with whatever, as long as it's fun. Storm and Callisto, to me, are soulmates, and I want them to be married. Like, that is how I feel about these characters. Endgame status. The Crucible issue oh that God. jerry duggan did yeah. in marauders with them that's the closest we'll probably ever get to their wedding issue and i'm fine with it like i was like this is perfect in which storm gives callisto that which she most wants by touching her heart that's literally how electrocuting her heart yeah. in a duel the one-on-one -on -one. anyway great issue <laughs> we'll get to krakoa will we we gotta move faster Here's the thing, unfortunately, after Mutant Massacre, most of the Callisto stories are bad. So we're going to skip through most of them. They're terrible, yeah. The worst part, and this horrifies Magneto also, the worst part is when they go back to the tunnels and everything's gone. Because in Thor, when yeah. Thor rescued Warren, who was crucified in the tunnels by Harpoon, and that's what leads into the Archangel storyline over Next Factor, Thor searches the tunnels for any survivors confronts Hela, the goddess of death. It's complicated. Don't worry about it. And then when he understands that no one is left alive in the tunnels, he calls down the lightning and incinerates everything. All the bodies, all the blood, scours it clean. And in a weird moment, Storm blames herself for that, right. even though she couldn't have done it. Well, Callisto is the one who brings it up. Exactly. So she and Callisto have, like, reached this great, beautiful understanding. They go down into the tunnels, and everything's gone. I think it's Magneto who can determine that it's because of, like, lightning or whatever. Callisto turns out, she's like, when we were fighting the thunder, and Storm's like, I don't have powers anymore, it wasn't me. And Callisto's like, I hope you're right, because this is disgusting. That would be very bad. Like <laughs> She's really, really, I mean, she wanted to bury her dead. And the bodies have been taken. Thor, as like a divine being, maybe didn't understand that what he was doing. Like, he's like, I'm clearing out a biohazard, basically. Right. To Callisto, these are her friends. This is her family. Magneto has made the explicit comparison to the Holocaust. And so I think the fact that the bodies get incinerated and nothing can be done to honor them is really... Oh, I didn't think of that until now. Oh, oh yeah. Oh. And it's a Norse god. I'm just... Oh. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not saying that's intentional. I'm just oh. saying it's one of those like... Hmm. These are, again, there's... This is a bleak era. Once you're looking at this as a text, yeah. it's a really rich text. Ugh. So that's sort of the end of the Mutant Massacre as an event. The other Marauders have been defeated. Sabretooth tracks them all to the mansion, and that's where he and Betsy have their big confrontation, which ends the event. After that, Callisto, because she is now homeless, the home that they built has also been taken from them. So she is now, like, without any home 
So what she decides to do, and this is, again, like, Callisto loves a powerful woman who she can devote herself to, right? Like, we see it with Storm, and what she does here, which is very interesting after the Krakoa era and the House of yeah. X-Recon, is because Moira McTaggart saved so many Morlock lives, like, all of the ones who survived that the X-Men recovered, it's really Moira who, like, stabilized them, Moira and Sharon. And they're medevacking lots of them to Muir Island. Yes. So Callisto becomes her bodyguard and moves to Muir Island with her. I really like that. There's a very weird story that we don't have to worry about. That's like a, um, it's a Marvel Comics Presents. It's actually very weird because it involves, (laughs) it involves Moira being mind controlled into creating a virus that kills mutants. Okay. Which just... It turns out she doesn't have to be mine. No, and it's like, it's like <laughs> prelude to the legacy of Iris, but also prelude to Moira X. Just very interesting. Callisto and Cyclops end up catching the virus, and Moira has to race to create an antidote, and Callisto and Cyclops like fight to their dying breath against the master mold. You don't have to worry about any of this storyline, but it's a cool Callisto storyline. She wears a truly insane outfit with like a purple studded high collar and thigh cutouts that I will put in the cover art for this episode. <laughs> but that is really kind of the end of her story for a long time because the Morlocks are out of the narrative and Follow the Mutants, which is a year later, the X-Men apparently die. And so her connection to Storm is gone. So she's just kind of around. After Inferno and everything, she comes back because Mask has seized control of the Morlocks underground, the ones who are left. And he has turned things into a much more nasty environment. Yeah, so Mask, this is also, maybe we'll save this for Alana's question. Yeah, so here's the thing. We'll get into this in the question and answer section. The big plot that Callisto has in the late 80s, early 90s, Siege Perilous era into Claremont's departure is that Mask, to fuck with her, turns her into a supermodel. And she ends up dating Colossus, who doesn't have his memories. He's the artist Peter Nicholas in New York because he stepped through the Siege Perilous. Eventually, Callisto gets turned back. And we have a whole question about this, and we'll get there because it ties into a lot of the questions about Callisto and beauty and stuff. That pivots into a plot where Mikhail Rasputin floods the Morlock tunnels with his vague powers. This is Uncanny X-Men 291 to 293 and like the more i think about this the more this might be like my least favorite x-men story of all time this is scott lubdell and tom rainey it's 1992 i love tom rainey claremont has just been pushed out basically and we are now in the lubdell era of uncanny x-men just to breeze past the plot because the the plot contrivance is not the important thing here the x-men After Callisto shows up beaten and bruised on the doorstep of the mansion, go back in the tunnels because apparently Mask has reassembled the Morlocks there, but they're they're all running wild, we're told. And the X-Men decide that for the Morlocks' own good, they are going to go back in the tunnels and sort everything out. This is such a collection of issues with the X-Men as cops. The Lobdale X-Men are very copy, if we're going to keep it 100, in a way that Claremont's were not. Really, like, the worst of them all is Bishop. Because when they go into the, the tunnels, ostensibly, 
they're there to stop the Morlocks from hurting one another and anyone else. But the X-Men, as police, incite a fucking riot in the Morlock tunnels. That, whether they meant it or not, they probably didn't. Because, like, an editorial note points out that, like, we forget when Callisto exactly, like, lost her facial features. But trust us, it happened. They're right. <laughs> but, like, editorial seems not to be too tight during this era. But, like, you, you see Bishop and some of the other X-Men, with the important exception of Colossus basically decide like we're going in guns blazing like we're separating people literally in bishop's case with guns blazing this spreads chaos up through into the streets and then at that point the x-men are not there to protect the morlocks from themselves they're there to protect humans from the morlocks to the point where in one case like in a moment that should be probably talked about more often with gene there's a Morlock called Mimi mm-hmm. who Gene just turns off his mind. Yep. And like a couple issues later, she's going to be very angry, justifiably, with Professor Xavier for doing that to Magneto. But like here she doesn't, it doesn't matter. Like you basically, the point of this story, there's no other way to say it. The Morlocks in this story are not people to the X-Men. It's an ugly story to read. Only Colossus is shown like actually restraining the X-Men and what's actually happening here is a frightened, empathic child is freaking out in the tunnels. And we learn this from Xavier's plot arc through here. Xavier, who like exhibits no effort to stop this nonviolently, particularly at the start, like he goes into the tunnels, he insists on going on this mission and he's like, maybe we can just sort of calm the Morlocks down. It's like, oh, no, I can't do it. You guys do this shit. I just have to give special look to how this story ends, by the way. Oh, yeah. It's also called The Last Morlock Story. So you see what they're trying to do. And that's a little bit of a fib because Labdell's clearly already planning the Gene Nation plot and Marrow and all of that stuff because what's revealed later is that Mikhail actually pulls them all into an alternate reality and they age there for 10 years or whatever. But the way it's presented in this story, the only answer for the Morlocks is mass suicide. The idea is to complete, I mean, is to complete, complete the genocide massacre. Like, yeah, it's, it says, and all that remains is death. And Callisto says, pray with me, my people, my brethren, that if there is a father who watches over the wretched and deformed, he can forgive us for what we now do. And Mikhail uses his powers to flood the Morlock tunnels and drown everyone inside them, apparently. And it says in the narration, the voice of every last Morlock is swallowed by the sound and fury of their final fatal act of defiance against a world where they never truly felt welcome, a world they are desperate to leave behind them forever. And I think the last thing to say about this, because it illustrates how poorly the Morlocks are treated by this you know, writing and editorial regime, is that throughout, Lobdell indicates that he read the poverty metaphor with the Morlocks, that is the Morlocks narrative point of their quote-unquote ugliness, as literal, and treats them as having nothing more at stake than being like mutants who the outside world considers hideous. And I think it reveals how, whether through benign neglect or active malice, the editorial regime at that time considered the Morlocks hideous, like a whole lot of society not only still does, but particularly in that era of New York, where I can tell you there was a political appetite for Rudy Giuliani 
that was not purely the consequence of access to vast wealth in New York City. No, let's get rid of the homeless was like a huge part of the support for Giuliani. And this, I think this is 1992. So we're like right Mm -hmm. at the, the months before Giuliani time. So yeah, I hate it. I'm more in the world that we could have had. I mean, in many ways, honestly, until the Krakow era, frankly, it is the last Morlock story because then they become G Nation, -Nation. which is something else entirely. And this is also like, I find Callisto's subservience to Mikhail Rasputin in this whole storyline very out of character and strange. And I just can't get behind it. Also, she's beautiful again, without explanation. Yeah. And has remained beautiful for the most part ever since. And we'll we'll get into that again. There's a question about it. I think the only thing that deserves mention with Callisto in this era, and as like we have also talked about earlier in the podcast, like this is truly an era where you just see like how wildly oscillating the treatments of Callisto are. There's no consistency here. She's an afterthought. None. Like the Morlocks are an afterthought. But her relationship with Marrow is significant. It is. Marrow is the big character of this moment. Go to the Marrow episode. It's called Sarah. It's with Steve Orlando. It's a fun episode that I think didn't get enough attention, possibly because no one knows that Marrow's name is Sarah, but I have a naming convention for these episodes and I just had to stick to it. Sorry. Marrow was basically Callisto's adopted daughter after they got to the hill where Mikhail took them. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. And has grown up into a real tough customer. She starts out as a really violent terrorist. By this point, she has become one of the X-Men. And the reason Marrow joins the X-Men is because Callisto begs her not to go down a destructive path and to find Storm and all of this other stuff. And spends most of this period recovering from injuries in the tunnels with leaves on her titties that Marrow put there. Yeah, the leaf bra is a very strange choice. They're like herbs or something. I don't know. It's a poultice? The Morlocks also in the 90s become very mystical in a way that they weren't previously. Like they have a religion and stuff. It's like, just don't worry about it, honestly. But, you know, what matters i think in that relationship especially is that callisto who is written in this era to have like a lot of ideological distaste for the x-men it's back to like the really sharp like love hate with storm i mean 10 years did pass on the hill but like it it doesn't really make sense honestly like you just feel like lobdell doesn't care about this character but like Callisto, if we're to read Callisto as a person here, is just basically telling Marrow, in order to keep her heart, she has to go be an X-Man. Like she's giving up her daughter right. to Storm. Yes. Her wife. Yeah. Callisto is doing in this moment what Charles does in Uncanny 200 exactly. with Magneto and says like, you have to watch. The you have to watch my child because I'm dying. Yeah. Like it's literally that. And then. And then. <laughs> The end of that storyline for Callisto is that she makes a devil's bargain with the Dark Beast who saves her life. And then because she's tied up with the Dark Beast now, she ditches Marrow and cuts her off so that Marrow won't get dragged into it. That's the end of Callisto. And like most plots with the Dark Beast will never be picked up on until Chris Claremont's triumphant return to the X-Men where she pops back up in Extreme X-Men. Where she has tentacles. And she loves 
having tentacles. She loves having she tentacles. She loves it. We need to give the proper context for this story. Basically, Chris Claremont writes the most pornographic X-Men story I think he has ever written. The X-Women one-shot with Milo Minara is visually pornier, but this is... This is pornography. I mean, this is a this is a naughty women in prison gladiator movie porn. This is the arena arc of Extreme X-Men, if you're keeping track at home. This is about as explicit as they can show Storm and Yukio having sex. There's an afterglow scene yep. where Yukio is showering and Storm puts like essentially like a bodice back on. Imagine yeah, she's that. like getting dressed while Yukio takes a shower. Yeah. So you have to imagine like Storm is thinking about like rounds X through infinity at this point. <laughs> Talk about X deaths. Oof. When we meet Callisto. And so like basically like there so are, Mask, yeah. for the context, we're in Japan because it's a Chris Claremont story. Mask <laughs> has created an underground mutant gladiator ring because it's a Chris Claremont story and he loves those. Callisto has been forced into servitude as one of the gladiators. And Mask and Callisto look very different. Mask fully transitions. Yeah, and Mask we need is to a point woman. this out. Mask is high femme here. Mask looks like Marilyn Monroe. Because the, here's the thing. Mask's great tragedy he has the power to, and I'm using he because he continues to use he, him he pronouns. In this story, though, Mask does use she, her. But in every other story, including the ones after this, after one, yeah. they revert. So I'm just going to use he, him because my brain's trying to keep it straight. Mask is a non-binary character, let's say. Mask is like any pronouns that you're feeling on a given day. Like many Chris Claremont stories, it's a trans story that doesn't explicitly say it's a trans story, right? Right. Mask's great tragedy is that Mask was violently disfigured by his mutation like he is constantly shrouding himself in like full yeah. hoods and things because his face his skin is just like all jumbled up and he has the power to reshape flesh with a touch but he can't do it to himself and that was always the big like tragic thing about mask without explanation extreme x-men he has overcome that problem and now can reshape himself and what he's chosen to do is become marilyn monroe which is very cool <laughs> The other thing he's done is impressed Callisto into service as a gladiator and turned her arms into a series of big honkin' green tentacles. And also some littler tentacles. Yeah, she's got a lot of tentacles, is what we're saying. She has like four tentacles. Not the number uh, four. More, like... Not no, the number yeah, four. Yeah, oh, no, like F-O-R-E four F-O-R-E tentacles. Right, no, because yeah. like, she's, she's got like eight on each side. He did do this also to Jean back in the day. Yes, this happens a lot in he Claremont, it turns out. He likes people's arms into tentacles, but... Yeah, that's that one with like... When Banshee, when Mask has, like, makes Banshee have no mouth. He erases Banshee's yeah. mouth and turns and Jean has arms the tentacles. into tentacles. Yeah. Which is also hot. Because <laughs> this is extremely hot. Like, this is, <laughs> like, this is a porno comic and it does its job. He gives his iconic butch villainess a bunch of tentacles. And she wraps Storm in them and they fight. And, and, and like, we should also just mention, especially because, like, how, like, the haircut, like, the is, is so severe. She's wearing, She's side-shaved. Like, she's wearing, like, I've never known, unfortunately, despite having dated my share of goth women, like, what this, like, <laughs> What this haircut fantastic- is called? No, not, not the haircut. <laughs> I'm talking about, like, the mesh top. Oh. Which is just fantastic. Goth women, you're doing tremendous. <laughs> But uh, she's not wearing really any other top. She's got some new tattoos. This is also like a story in which like the more characters you meet, you just see like the irrelevance of gender, like the major domo of the fight club. 
and it has to be a fight club because otherwise it's just a sex club. But the major domo is is like entirely androgynous and like a really amazing character design that's also very like powerful and hot. This arc is insane. Basically, Yukio and Storm and Strong Guy randomly team up with Glisto. They defeat Mask, who was going to sell them all to Telemore Vosges, an alien slaver that Claremont kept trying to make happen in this period. He just never quite happened. This leads to the very iconic panel where Kitty is talking to Callisto and is asking about the tentacles. And Callisto says, Mask, making free with the revenge thing, courtesy of her skin-morphing powers. And Kitty says, backfired? And Callisto says, absolutely, because Callisto loves her tentacles. She's reaching out with her tentacles to, like, brush Kitty's hair behind her ear. (laughs) And Kitty says, leave the hair alone, okay? (laughs) No offense, but it's literally Trafe. No tentacles on my hair, please. Actually, I don't think Kitty keeps kosher, but you know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it is. I just need to note, Callisto has literally stepped out of a closet. Oh, wow. And Kitty says, you came out of the closet? (laughs) (laughs) And Callisto turns to Storm, who is wrapped in her tentacles, and she has the little tentacles wrapped around Storm's hair and is pulling her hair. And Callisto says, At the time, it seemed like the thing to do. (laughs) I would also note that in one of the the scenes in the arena where Storm is winning, and also winning while wearing Marrow's same top, except like Storm is wearing metal pasties, while Storm is celebrating her, her victory with her arms thrown up in triumph, Callisto's tentacles are like delicately wrapped around Storm's exposed belly. Like this is... There's an on-scene panel with Callisto straight getting serviced at the bondage orgy by people of multiple genders, one of whom is actually, like, fondling her, her boob while sticking his face into her four tentacles. Yeah, there's a Storm and Yukio and Callisto hot tub sequence. There's a lot going on. Marvel Comics <laughs> is not what it used to be. This is before the mouse Way got its hands yeah. on Marvel Comics. So Callisto kind of tags along with the Extreme X-Men for the rest of that book. She helps him with Elias Bogan, yada yada. And from there, she pivots directly into Claremont's new Excalibur, Volume 3. Where they're living on the ashes of Genosha. She and Xavier and and Magneto. Magneto, Because this is the book that retcons Zorn into not being Magneto. Magneto, who had faked his death or whatever, is helping Charles rebuild Genosha. And Callisto ends up joining their crew and becoming sort of... The Wolverine. Yeah, like the Wolverine of their team, but also the third prong of leadership sort of in this group in a way that she was never allowed to be politically previously. I think Charles and Eric in this run don't see her as an equal. They don't. But they see her importance. They see her abilities. They treat her like Cyclops or Wolverine. Like she's like a field leader who they respect to make decisions. She's like first sergeant yeah. of whatever army the Xavier Magneto forces have now. It's what Emma's doing with her now as the yeah. White Knight. Well, I think maybe between this and with Callisto as Moira's muscle, that's where they're drawing from with the yeah, White exactly. Knight. Yeah, exactly. It's, of the it's a consistent, yeah. right. The only thing I think we have to really dwell on here is that like at several moments, Callisto brings in the structural critique of what's going on there and like has a scene with Warren. Still tentacles, by the way. Still tentacled out. Still tentacled and fabulous. As she'll remain until the unfortunate decimation. But like, they're having this conversation with Viper 
in which like Viper is like I hate how much I love Viper. I love Viper and literally a Nazi, but she's such a great villain. Yeah. Viper is kind of explaining like, ah, you know, like what we're going to do is just like forcibly exploit as many like remaining mutants as we can. And like Warren, the rich liberal, <laughs> goes, Viper, this is the 21st century. <laughs> and like Viper's like, read Amnesty International. And Callisto just goes to heck with that, read history. When America was built by slaves, life was cheap. Manual labor is easily trained as replaced. Today, mutants are recreating the same equation, which is bolded in there. Who needs a work crew or even construction equipment when the right mutant can build you a skyscraper single-handed or tear one down single-handed? I wrote in my notes, teach these angels. <laughs> they have Callisto go, we're becoming commodities, flyboy. I mean, you run a multinational corporation. Do the math. As a responsible businessman, who do you hire? The handful of mutants who do the job or the army of flat scans who used to? And like Warren, who's like totally caught, literally being crushed under the he's weight. He's also, he's of, holding yeah. up the ceiling. So the, there's also a great moment where Viper and Calista both go, he's mine, with like a unified, they're fighting over Warren, which like, this is, uh, Callisto's sexuality is <laughs> confusing, but I do take her interest in Warren to be mostly performative. Like, I do think it's a political performance art piece she's doing because even as she's saying he's mine, she's also dragging him by the hair, as Spencer is pointing out, for every decision politically he's ever made in his entire life. <laughs> so it feels to me mostly like she's trolling, but I don't know. It's funny. But at the same time, like... She likes him, though. That's what's funny. It's like she's always giving him shit, but she's just like, you are charming, though. <laughs> I mean, I was going to say that, like, Claremont needs Callisto in this moment to explain what the post-Genosha danger is, pre-decimation, yes. to mutants as they exist in what will ultimately be a very brief editorial window. Right, because if he is for extinction is real and the mutants are going to outmode humans, then the humans are going to find a way to exploit them first. Callisto is explicating the neoliberal to fascist dialectic, where she says, like it or not, to the generation we replace, mutants are the competition. How long before some demagogue makes us the enemy? Warren the liberal. No offense, Callisto, but my concerns are a lot more immediate. Right. The other fun thing about that is that Claremont brings Husk on that journey because Husk and Warren started dating in the Austin run. And Claremont clearly is just like, what is this? And so <laughs> the whole time, Callisto is just constantly cucking Paige. Like, it's really, <laughs> it's just really, she's just like always flirting relentlessly with Warren it's very funny. It's just very funny. Because you can tell he's just like, this is weird and I don't like it about Paige and Warren. And also, like, an amazing thing about this era that we now, like, can see in retrospect, Xavier, Callisto, and Magneto repeatedly save Omega Sentinel. Yes, because this is where Karima comes in. Yeah. She's actually a Claremont creation, which is an interesting thing about Karima that I think some people don't know. And Excalibur 12, Callisto with the tentacles is wearing the X, and so is Omega Sentinel. <laughs> Karima is like has the X insignia on. Well, Karima, it's, no. Here's the thing. Karima is a good egg. The problem is future. Is the Karima. Yeah. yeah, I mean, like Karima's whole arc has always been about how she's actually a, an ally to mutants, but the Sentinel programming is desperate to make her kill them. <laughs> well, though, I, I don't know if we want to like talk about Inferno Four, but like that scene is astounding. It's perfect. It's perfect. And then we're on Krakow. Yeah, I mean, so she gets depowered, 
in uh, The Decimation. She is the guinea pig in Son of M when Quicksilver is trying to use the Terrigen Mist to repower decimated mutants. And it works. This is why M-Pox has always kind of confused me because like, we had a whole Terrigen Mist interacting with the X-Gene plot earlier, but whatever. Let's not worry about it. It works. It does repower her temporarily, but it also makes her power goes so into overdrive that like a drop of rain is like a stab and she can't stop hearing everything. Cause Callisto's power, we haven't even mentioned this because it's not really ever talked about. Yeah. It's nuts. She has superhuman senses. That's it. Except like they constantly talk about her, like her mutant power is also like said in narration captions that she can like fight like on a Wolverine level, which eh. she has also has preternatural agility in the way that like Hank does, but not to Hank's extent. Basically, she's a really tough broad and it's a mutant power. Don't worry about it. Like yeah. to the point where on Krakoa, I didn't realize until the issue where she does the crucible that she didn't have her powers the entire time in Marauders. Right, because she just fights that well. She just is that cool all the time, and the powers are subtle, right? So that happens with Quicksilver, puts her in a coma. Then when she comes back, it's in PAD's X-Factor, where she and Marrow, who was also depowered in the Decimation, are part of X-Cell, which is a terrorist group of decimated mutants who are trying to get answers about the Decimation. After that, we don't see her again for a really long time. She pops up in, like, X-Men Gold, She's in... um, This was not an era I was reading. Yeah, she's in the IVX era briefly. Like, when M-Pox is happening, you know, I hate to talk about IVX, but she opens the tunnels up to humans and mutants. She does what? They have her do what? The embodiment of Charles Xavier's dream of coexistence. Come, humans who are afraid of the war on the surface, down to the tunnels. I know, makes me want to die. Anyway... In the 2019 soft reboot House of X-Pirates with Heather and Jonathan Hickman, we get Callisto on the Marauders. I have really enjoyed this. I think it was necessary because the name Marauders, repurposing the name Marauders, was something I was very skeptical of when this book started. Storm on panel says And I was relieved by that because I was like, why are we doing... Well, and so here's the thing. Kitty, now Kate, is one of the people who was most harmed by the Marauders. So... There's that. And that is what Callisto says to Mask. Yes, I was going to bring that up. Because Mask raises the objection and Callisto says, Pride was hurt by those people as much as we were. If she wants the name, I say she's entitled to it. And that ends the discussion. Yeah, and I think that having Callisto serve on the new Marauders is what makes it feel like it's an okay word to use. You know what I'm saying? And she doesn't need to stay with them because she's not in the new relaunch. But I think it was an important deck clearing to be like we're using this name for something else now and the leader of the people they genocided says it's okay <laughs> and also of all the people that raised that objection mask i hesitate to call what what jerry duggan has done with mask which i think has really been fantastic character work a uh, face turn because it's just such an unbearable well, because, pun yeah because mask turns everybody's faces I like it, but I do think that it is an interesting turn for the character who has up to this point been pure evil. (laughs) In that Extreme X-Men arc, like a narration panel explicitly tells us that Mask sexually assaults both Callisto and Storm, quote, every night. Yeah, this is the thing about Claremont's return, generally. I think that the fetish stuff gets really kicked into overdrive. It felt like editorially he wasn't being reined in the way that he was in the 80s by his female editors 
And so, yes, the implication is that Marilyn Monroe mask is doing predatory lesbian stuff to Callisto and Storm while they are in the gladiatorial circuit. And I think we should just probably not think about that because it will never be brought up again, I imagine. Okay, great. Because, you know, I think the other thing just to point out is that, like, Mask and a, and it seems like a whole community of other once-associated Morlocks don't live on Krakoa. Right. They're skeptical of Krakoa and they have their Arizona retirement community and then the Marauders help them establish a new Morlock community in, in Lowtown in Madripoor. And, like, there we sort of see the Morlocks... Or at least like that crew of Morlocks. Bliss and Marrow. Yeah, like all those folks who are a little bit rougher around the edges. Who are finally given resources and are like integrated into an existing society. Kate Bride gives them a job that they can use to exist in this economy and also gives them structural support from Krakoa. Yeah. Now we have a new circumstance for Morlocks in their relationship with the outside world in which they are neither being exploited nor exploiting others. Right. Like, this is a really lovely turn. I think Jerry threaded that needle really well. So, but of course, you know, I think we got to talk about Marauder 17, right? Because that's the, the crucible issue. It's the culmination of the Storm and Callisto arc. Callisto allows herself to, like, feel the safety of Krakoa, which is the profound thing, I think, that happens here. Callisto goes to Storm and be like, I want you to kill me in the Crucible. So I can get my powers back. Here are some knives. Do that. Kill me so I can come back. Storm, because she loves this woman, expresses apprehension. I'm not going to kill this woman. I love her. You know? The way Storm does it in, in, you know, and it's, I think, a very deliberate reference to Uncanny 170. Absolutely. The way Storm gives Callisto what she wants is by literally touching her heart, sending an electromagnetic shock so that Callisto peacefully leaves this world to be reborn into the life that she wants. And it's a lovely thing that sets up wherever Callisto goes next with the Marauders, with Krakoa, with Hellfire, with Madripoor. And that's basically the status quo that we have now. And, you know, we don't see, or we haven't seen yet in the Krakoa era, Callisto as leader of Morlocks. Outside of, like, the Arizona crew, we don't yet have Callisto as leader yet. We have Callisto as, like, underboss. I think that's where she's most comfortable, is the thing. I think she likes being the advisor to someone who can make the really nasty political decisions that Callisto doesn't always want to make herself. If someone like Storm or someone like Emma or someone like Moira can be calling the shots, it has to be a woman. I think that is a a way that she is comfortable operating, is being the radical advisor to a more liberal politician. Well, I think now is a good time to get into the listener questions. Thank you all, everybody who wrote in. David Welsh writes, Dear Connor and Spencer, I'm really looking forward to your discussion of my favorite Morlock. Callisto is such a formidable character that she seems able to endure the worst that the world can throw at her, including a tentacle phase and dating Peter Rasputin, bisexual (laughs) mutant's apparently irresistible catnip. She is indeed a member of the Colossus Has a Big Everything Club. She sure is. Callisto's a great example of the Chris Claremont trope, the ex-antagonist turned ally. She's one of my favorites of this category because, even now, after all these years, she still seems like she's not entirely sold on the notion of a mutant community she didn't design. 
For often ruthless advocacy for mutants who don't have passing privilege makes her relatively unique among prominent mutants, and I'd love to see that play out in the Krakoa era, because, as Vita Ayala has articulated in New Mutants, even on an all-mutant island, the pretty ones still have the advantage. My question is about Callisto's origins, which have always been nebulous. I'm actually of two minds about that. Part of me is delighted that she's such a badass we don't really need to see flashback panels of baby Cal in a field of flowers. But another part of me would really love to see a really thoughtful examination of her journey to found the Morlocks. What are your thoughts on that? Is there more value to keeping it vague? Does it depend on the right writer having a great pitch for Callisto origins? Thanks. I would say I don't want to see, like, early trauma Callisto, but I would like to see a a Callisto year one where she's like fully Callisto and founding the Morlocks, you know, underneath the noses of the X-Men. Right. So here's the thing, and we'll get into this more in a question later about Callisto and beauty politics, but the only backstory we've ever gotten for Callisto is during the Kulan Gath arc in Uncanny 191, when Danny Moonstar pulls the thing she fears most out of her mind. And it is an image of herself as a beautiful woman. Specifically, it says the woman she once was. The implication being that Callisto's facial scarring is something that was done to her in some kind of attack by humans, and that that is what compelled her to go underground. That's really all we get. We know that Mask and Sunder have been there with her from pretty much the beginning. The big thing that's annoying is that Scott Lobdell, in a cable story in like 1996, I think, establishes that the Dark Beast created the first Morlocks, that there were people underground already because they were, you know, mutated by the Dark Beast. And that's why the mutant massacre happened, because the Dark Beast was trained by the Sinister of Earth-295. And so Sinister of Earth-616 recognizes his own work in the Morlocks and says, we got to get rid of this, someone's copying my notes which is funny as like a petty gesture from Mr. Sinister, but really breaks the metaphor of the Morlocks in a way that sucks. So that's part of why I don't want to revisit it because I don't like, I would rather not go and have to deal with all of the continuity stuff from the nineties about the founding of the Morlocks, which implies that like Callisto and mask found people down there already, which I don't think is what happened. Like, I don't think that makes sense. And I also, I agree, I don't want to see, like, Callisto freshly attacked and violated by a bunch of men, and she has to become strong. Like, I I just, the trauma porn of that, I don't really want to read either. Callisto the liberator. Callisto the one who helps you escape and builds the necessary structures for your defense. But I'd rather read that in the present as a Callisto miniseries now. You know what I mean? Like, rather than revisiting the past stories just because her character arc has been so herky-jerky over the years and I think that she's in a really good place now and so digging back into the past I think would be a mistake I also just tend to think that origin minis and whatnot are a mistake period there's never really any reason to do that except for a suicide squad book that's gonna come out shortly well (laughs) it's okay um, it's my challenge to convince you moving on because I'm sure it'll be great. <laughs> there are exceptions. There are except- Listen, I'm very excited that Kieran's doing some flashback Mystique and Destiny stuff. I love Teeny's flashback Mystique and Destiny story in the Pride Anthology. I like a good flashback story. I find that as an ongoing title, like or a, a long-term title like Wolverine Origins, it's bad. Particularly when the point is that the character's mysterious, and I think that Callisto's mystery is an important part of the character. 
Like, we don't know what her real name is. She named herself after this mythological character. And I didn't mention this earlier, by the way. It depends on the version you hear. In some versions, Callisto was Zeus's lover, and that's what pisses off Artemis and then Hera. In other versions, as is often the case in a lot of versions of these myths, she's Zeus's victim. Mm. And Artemis still rejects her because she's now been tainted by a man. So it's fraught. But the myth of Callisto is nevertheless tied up, you say, with someone who controls thunder? The god of thunder, literally, yes. Interesting. She's the lover of the god of thunder. Interesting. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Caleb Dennis writes, Hello, Connor and Spencer. When I heard that an upcoming episode would feature my favorite Cerebro guest discussing a character about whom I've been desperate for a deep dive, well, to say I was excited was an understatement. Callisto's intriguing to me because she seems to be an outlier among the Morlocks in that she doesn't have a visible mutation. Sunder's strength comes from his terrifying stature. Mask can mold others' flesh but can't fix his own deformities. Caliban has the whole cave-dwelling fish or golem look going on, etc. But Callisto is perfectly average looking aside from the scars and eye patch she looks just like someone you'd see on the street so why is she the leader of the morlocks if their whole thing is being the unsightly mutants who can't pass as human why is their leader someone who can is it meant as a critique of xavier that he can't abide an ever so slightly less than perfect x-man do the scars really stop her from living a normal life among humans or have i missed something love the pod every new episode makes my day here's something that i think is important is the time, like the context in which this character is created. Because in a superhero comic in the early 80s, an ugly woman is pretty radical. It's (laughs) true. They don't exist in superhero comics. Every woman in a superhero comic is a pinup girl. Having Patti Smith in your comic, and I think Patti Smith, I'm saying ugly in the sense of like traditional beauty standards. Patti Smith was a model. You know, it depends on your perspective. But having a character in a superhero comic who is not beautiful in the sense that every other female character in the book is beautiful, it kind of makes sense at that moment. But yes, in retrospect, especially because Callisto has become prettier and prettier over the years in terms of how she's drawn, it doesn't really make a ton of sense. But I think that part of it is that Callisto can interact with the surface world as necessary and that that, like, they need a leader who can dialogue with humans or with passing mutants when it's an emergency. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, first of all, thank you, Caleb. Second of all, like you're saying, Connor, there are narrative necessity reasons. This is the boring part of the answer. There are narrative necessity Right. It's reasons. like it's because for the story, they need a character who can go up to the surface and talk to people. But I think beyond that, one thing, despite perhaps the discrepancy between Callisto, who presents as human, as opposed to some of the other Morlocks who don't and can't. Right. Is that Callisto has lived the experience of those mutants who don't and can't pass. Whatever has happened to her, we just know this by virtue of who she is. She has experienced the exploitation of mutants in this circumstance from the outside world and the neglect to active malice of other mutants. Whatever happened to her, she's been through it and she's lived it and she understands where these people are coming from, basically. Callisto has the position that she has that we see in Uncanny 169 and 170 because she has been beneficial to the Morlocks. Like, the love, Sunder is usually the one they do this with, but, like, when the X-Men try to attack Callisto, the Morlocks mob. Right. The Morlocks have love for Callisto because of what Callisto has meant to them and what Callisto has provided to them. Well, she is the mother bear, again, literally, in, like, terms of the name that Claremont gives her. Oh, cool. Callisto's Ursa Major. I mean, that's the... Look at what I'm learning today. (laughs) (laughs) 
David Kritsky writes, Dear Connor and Spencer, first of all, Connor, thank you for this wonderful podcast. It's the highlight of my week. I also must thank both you and Spencer for improving my household relationship with the X-Men. My wife has always tolerated my love of the X-Men and has a baseline <laughs> understanding of the characters and plot points, but never had much interest beyond the movies. But I've hooked her with the Magneto episode, and she's been along for the ride ever since, literally, because the podcast is now our shared preference for long car trips. That delights me. I'm glad that we are bringing people together. The agenda. Ask me about my goblin agenda. So... Anyway, my questions regarding Callisto's tentacles, which I'm sure have befuddled several listeners. Callisto's had a complicated relationship with her physical appearance, both being happy and sad about the results of mask manipulation to either make her look gorgeous or hideous by human standards. However, she was portrayed as enjoying her time with the tentacles throughout the short-lived publication history of the Arena and Genosha days. She specifically said it was her perfect form. Yes. And most importantly, it was her last physical form before M-Day occurred and she was depowered. Given that, why did she not choose to come back with tentacles when she was resurrected after the Crucible? Were the writers trying to avoid distracting from the Crucible story with Storm, one of the most poignant stories written in the Krakoan Age? Isn't it acknowledgement that Callisto has always valued her ability to integrate as a passing human, even if that contradicts her warlock philosophy? Would the tentacles make it more difficult for her to do her work as a marauder? Thanks again for creating an amazing space to discuss all things mutants. I look forward to many more future episodes. So, you know, only the people in that X office know, like, what actually happened here. I certainly don't. Most people hate that story, is the thing. <laughs> like, it is a famously bad X-Men story. And we're talking about it because it's fun, because <laughs> it's funny, and it's porn, and it's insane. But, like, it's a very bad X-Men comic. And I mostly think Extreme is pretty good. Arena is not good. The fact of the matter is... Yes, it would make more sense for her to come back with the tentacles, but it's been 15 years since she had them. So new readers would be like, what the fuck is this? And <laughs> old readers hated that storyline. So I think that we're just supposed to not worry about it. Maybe she can tell the five the next time. Perhaps she wasn't top of mind. Well, but what I think is interesting is that she still has the eye patch. So clearly, yeah. and the scars on her face. So that's true. She had to ask Proteus to do that specifically, the way that Karma asked to be brought back with her amputation. So it's a choice she's made. I think maybe once she got her arms back, she was like, oh, it is easier to have thumbs. Like, who knows? It's just like not, you know, maybe she was making the best of a bad situation <laughs> when she was tentacular. But it's really true. She says on, like, Mask goes, I'll restore your arms when Mask is defeated in Extreme Action. Yeah. I'll restore your arms. Callisto, I'll make you perfect mask she replies i am perfect yeah here's the thing basically no one wants to write tentacle callisto so they're not going to write tentacle callisto like what it really is if we're going to look at it is the krakoa era in a lot of ways has been about resetting characters to a place where they're most useful for story and a lot of the time that's about resetting them to sort of their most iconic form and callisto's most iconic form is a lady with an eye patch fighting storm with a knife not a lady with tentacles so i think it's more of an out of story concern but I agree that in character, it's a little odd. However, as we've been pointing out, Callisto's characterization is wildly inconsistent every time she appears. And the Duggan characterization, I think, is pretty close to her classic 80s characterization in a way I've really enjoyed. So overall, I'm good with it. The arena arc of Extreme X-Men is truly just so insane. It's a Chuck Austin level insane kind of story. So I think that anything said within it must be taken with a slight grain of salt. Mutants are immortal now. Callisto has an infinite number of lifetimes to come back with the tentacles. And she and Mask are cool at this point, so she can go get tentacles back for a mission if she wants tentacles for a mission, you know? Maybe she'll have a tentacle moment. You never know. <laughs> Alana Levin writes... 
Callisto is a really important character to a lot of gender non-conforming queers because she is the rare example of a butch woman in a comic. Yes, we have Rachel too, but Callisto is almost uniquely depicted as not pretty in her first appearances while still being completely compelling. It's revealing which creative teams interpret that as her being ugly and which understand hers to be a specific gender performance that by design rejects heteronorms and is hot on its own queer terms. The storyline where she's forcibly changed into a supermodel but rejects her new male gaze approved face and wardrobe is so important. Since that story, and before the Hickman era, when I've seen creators address Callisto's looks, they write her as an ugly woman who desperately wants to be conventionally beautiful. I think they're completely missing the point and being extremely hetero about it. Things are better today. I love how Caselli and Daughterman are absolutely channeling the Joan Jett aesthetic. Callisto's never been hotter, but in doing so, we've also landed in a place where she's grown with softer features, even though she still has an overall butch aesthetic. Her facial scars are the kind an edgy editorial model could get away with. It sort of seems like they're splitting the difference between letting her have non-standard gender expression and wanting to give her more classically beautiful features. Is this aspect of her story one that you've thought much about? Because I can tell you that for a lot of us, this is central to our love for this knife lesbian, with capital letters. Thanks, Elon Eleven from Graphic Policy. Thanks for writing that in, Alana. Check out the Jamie Madrox episode if you haven't. Alana's great. And this is the question we've been referring we've to We've been referring to again. a couple times. Because here's the, the arc that we kind of skipped over a little bit. The way Claremont writes the supermodel arc, it is one of many non-consensual transformations that a character feels weird about, particularly with regard to gender performance. So in this case, Callisto, yes, is transformed into a femme and hates it. On panel, explicitly telling Peter Nicholas. That, like, this is not her. This is not my face, etc. And then wildly after. Then Scott Lobdell decides that, because here's the thing, there is that bit in 191 about what she fears is the beautiful face she had before she was attacked, right? So, like, there is something in her that fears that, but what is it that she fears about it? Does she fear being ugly now, quote-unquote ugly? Or does she fear the way that she was commodified by men when she was beautiful? I interpret it as the second. The latter by far, yeah. So what Lobdell does is has Mask undo it and turn her ugly again, and it drives her crazy. It's awful. It's just- It's It's so so bad. bad. And she decides that now her quest, because she's been turned ugly once more, is to kill all the Morlocks. And be fit to die. Once that and kill herself is... with them. Yeah, that's what turns into the suicide pact thing we talked about at the end of that story. It sucks. It's bad. It's offensive, frankly. And we praised Lovedell's work in this period a lot in our Xavier episode. About seven issues later, he has a real great run of about 10 issues that are just impeccable with the Amelia Vote issue that we talked about, the death of Candy Southern with the phalanx that I talked about on the Candy Southern episode. There's some great stuff. This story fucking eats. This is a terrible X-Men story. One of the things that Alana is getting at is that, like, the way it sucks is significant. Yes. It sucks sociopolitically. Like, it's not just a bad plot. Yeah. It's saying ugliness which is not something any of us should feel about ourselves intrinsically. That's something that the outside world makes us feel. Correct. Is something to be solved. Right. And the the solution for it isn't the outside world. The solution for it is trying to, unfortunately, do what Callisto does righteously elsewhere in her character history, try and escape it, even if that means killing yourself. It's a disgusting message to instill upon people. And it's and we talked about the, how it's disgusting on a class politics level, but in this, 
this aspect that we wanted to say for here. It's also just it's sexist in a way that yes, is it's really a specifically ge- it's a misogynist storyline. It's a specifically gendered thing. Yeah. Anyway, it's gross and is as it turns out once you like mainline a ton of Callisto comics, an excellent barometer for how well how deftly the character is going to be written. Yeah, and I think that it's possible to have a traditionally hot Callisto. Like, I do think, as you point out, that they're striking a good balance right now. I found Matteo Lolly's art on Marauders too soft with her, but I think that is just his style. Like, I similarly, I've said many times, like, Christian Frost should look 40, not 20. And I think that Lolly sometimes makes, that's a stylistic thing. I think that Caselli did a great job splitting the difference. But here's the thing. No matter how hot Callisto looks, the image of Callisto as the White Knight on the cover art here is from that issue. It's her in the white suit that she wears to the Crucible, which is so hot. It's like a really cool menswear look that she's doing. Very editorial, as Mm -hmm. Alana points out. I do think that Butch supermodel, like Jenny Shimizu kind of look is like not a crazy way to take this character to split the difference between all the very different portrayals. But the writing is so strong and the storytelling of the art is so strong that it's undeniably Callista. Whereas a lot of the time when Callista shows up and she's hot Callista, you're like, this is going to be a bad story. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that she always should look different from the other women in the comic. And I think that gender presentation has always been the way to do that. I think she needs to have a butch aesthetic very affirmatively always because it brings really false when she like that's the point of the supermodel arc in Siege Perilous is that like Callisto looking like Cindy Crawford running around in an evening gown is insane. Yeah. Whereas now she looks like crust punk with money. Yeah. At the very least, I wish she had that, like, strong Patti Smith nose back. Yeah. I associate that with her... The more angular feature. Yeah. Callisto should have really sharp, kind of bird-like features to me. The Amoebix logo. Yeah. You know, give her a schnoz. That would go a long way, I think, actually. Because right now she does look like she went to Emma's doctor. <laughs> Kat Driscoll writes, Hi, Connor and Spencer. I hope this finds you both well. Since you both teased this episode back during the Cerebro season one finale, I'm extremely interested to hear more of your thoughts on Callisto being another pillar of mutant liberation theory, for lack of a better term, which I assume you'll dive into throughout the episode. Hi, Kat. My question's in relation to that. If you had to assign a political theorist that aligns with Callisto's political philosophy, who would you pick? To me, the whole setup of Morlock society seems to have roots in Marxist traditions. But whereas I feel it's easier to point out different theorists for Xavier, Magneto, or Emma, I find Callisto's a bit harder to peg down. Thank you both for all your really interesting insights in your previous episodes together. can't wait to hear your thoughts not only on Callisto's publication history, but also her importance to mutant society. See you both on the Discord. Warmest regards, Kat. P.S. Congratulations on your book, Spencer, and also on your upcoming Suicide Squad comic. Thank you so much, Kat. Another one of my faves on the Discord. One of the other incredible Discord mods. I don't know if he counts as a political theorist, although I think there's definitely an argument for that as much as a historian, but C.L.R. James, the legendary Caribbean Marxist historian and political scientist. You know, so much of my prism of the Morlocks, as, as I mentioned up top, owes itself to the the Black Jacobins, his classic history of the Haitian Revolution. Mm-hmm. So I would go with C.O.R. James or other people in the Caribbean Marxist tradition. That's a great answer. I don't have an answer because I'm not a political scientist. So I'm going to... <laughs> <laughs> my knowledge of theory is very 101, so I'm not going to opine. But it's definitely interesting. And that's why I have Spencer on the pod to talk about this stuff. Everybody, if you haven't read C.L.R. James's The Black Jacobins, you owe it to yourself. 
Tim Maytum writes, hi, Connor and Spencer. Loving the show as always, and can't wait to hear you discuss Mutantkind's best eyepatch wearer. Glissa's powers seem to have been portrayed pretty inconsistently over the years, even allowing for her depowering and the sigh tentacles. <laughs> How do you picture her compared to someone like Daredevil, James Proudstar, or other similar heroes? Do you think she needs something more to distinguish her powers-wise, or do her other qualities and overall badassitude make up for straightforward mutant abilities? I do think this is part of why the character has never been a big star and why she was outmoded by Marrow in a lot of ways in the 90s, who has a dramatic Wolverine-style visual power. I will say that I would like to see more stuff from Callisto's perspective occasionally. Like, There's that great bit in the Crucible issue where she sees Storm in all of these like synesthetic colors after her powers are restored. Mm-hmm. it shows you like how Callisto's superhuman senses witness the world. And I think that's really interesting. We've never gotten that before. So maybe occasional flashes to that. Like if she's on a mission and she's like, yeah. seeing you in thermal, give us like predator vision from Callisto. You know what I mean? Like that would be cool because otherwise I like that her powers are subtle because I think that it's cooler on some level that this like skinny punk broad can beat the shit out of people the way that she does. <laughs> Like, it's just fun. I don't really want her to have, like, eye lasers. This is the other reason that the tentacles were not my favorite, because, like, I do think that part of her charm is that she is unassuming until she's fighting. Apart from, like, her fashion, which is not unassuming. But you get what I'm saying. Yeah, anytime you can give a character a bit of a of a visual effect when, like, their power is activated yeah. or something like that, it's cool. But, you know, I don't think you want to change Callisto too much too much for all the reasons that you mentioned Connor they did in the last stand they gave her super speed and it was dumb they also gave her Caliban's power which I thought was interesting they combined them into one character that's like actually a good Fox X-Men movie decision but everything else they did with the character was bizarre I'm not gonna revisit that movie sorry we don't need to that's the last stand for anybody keeping track at home Spencer Graham writes, aside from working for the Hellfire Trading Company and some form of government leadership, where else in Krakoan society do you think Callisto would excel? Maybe X-Corp or helping Storm out on Arako? That's where, I mean, she's not continuing with the Marauders. If we're going to put her somewhere and have her be a regular in the book, and I know I keep throwing everybody over there, but it's partly because I'm so excited for that book. I do think she'd be great in like Storm's royal guard on Arako. I think if you take her out of Hellfire, a whole lot of bad things are going to happen and a lot of more malicious i mean particularly now that shinobi has been empowered that's true she really is a conscience there and yeah now that shinobi and the cuckoos are in charge i think i mean like she and lordis can probably actually that would be a good one yeah now i'm like wait now actually i want callisto and lordis on an adventure because i'm loving the way that jerry is writing lordis i think that that's a great Krakow and era choice to bring that character back and revamp her. Not that it's a bad choice to put her on Morocco. No, all of these would be good. My thing is just that Hellfire seems to be backgrounding somewhat, right? Like it's not going to be the focus of a title. So Emma and Shaw are refocusing on the council and we've got NPCs essentially who are going to head up Hellfire trading because they're characters that you don't need to have around all the time. If I'm not mistaken, Steve Orlando has said that explicitly that he wants for his run. His Marauders run is not going to be about Hellfire. Yeah. It's about rescue. Doing Mutants Sans Frontières type stuff from back in the aughts, but in a piratey way. I think it's going to be so fun. I'm excited. So much. Zach Jenkins writes, Dear Entertainment Weekly Best Podcast Recognized Host and Pulitzer Prize winner who are both talking about X-Men. Callisto loves knives. Do you think she goes to gun and knife shows down at the fairgrounds or the more rundown convention centers? Thanks, Zach Jenkins. Definitely rundown. She is at like, I don't know, like swap meet level. (laughs) <laughs> like weapons exchanges like she's in she's in grimy places looking for like certain antiques mm-hmm. she's definitely doing that 
Max Kramer writes, Hi, Connor and esteemed guests. So excited to hear your take on one of the most underrated X-Men characters. My question is this. What do you think has kept Callisto from becoming a major X-Men character? She's quickly become one of my favorites while reading through the Claremont run, but I was disappointed to find she never reached the prominence of other antagonists or antiheroes in the future of the mutant world. Is it that her powers aren't very visual, or is it because Callisto just isn't the type to join a team unrelated to the Morlocks? Thanks so much. I really love the podcast, and Spencer's episodes have been some of my favorites. Make mine Cerebro. So I think the lack of a visual power does hurt her. I think that it always does in X-Men when you have so many characters with cool visual powers. I also think that being a butch woman who is not traditionally comic book hot has hurt her because... It's not necessarily like what every writer wants to throw into their book. I think that the marrow plot and the weirdness of the 90s also made a lot of people just not want to touch her because it was weird. I think in addition to all of those excellent points, it's the problem that we keep talking about for the challenge that the Morlocks pose, pose to the X-Men. Like, and the more you, you have Callisto, the more you kind of inevitably foreground that and it's extremely uncomfortable and it's the same logic why you don't get so many people outside from the immortal Emma Frost line where were you when our babies were burning right that every Avengers story isn't right this is all well and good but there are fucking vivisectionists running around as you've pointed out the Morlocks turn the X-Men into the Avengers yeah. By their existence. Like, because they are saying, where were you when our babies were burning? Exactly. And that's a challenge to the X-Men that the narrative can't always hold. I think that what they're doing now, this community mad report, I think the way that the plot is developing is a really smart way to navigate that. And giving Callisto a leadership position of some kind has been also an important way to do that. Last question, Krakoa Welcomes writes, do you think Callista would have been more formidable in her sewer duel with Storm if she did not have a superhuman sense of smell? What does it say about her as a tragic character to be surrounded by subjective ugliness, filth, and pain when she experiences everything tenfold? Oops, that accidentally became a real question. All I can really fixate on at this point is like, imagine she had the tentacles during that fight. Like, maybe she doesn't lose that. No, she, she would have won. Position. Yeah. Storm just simply can't defeat Callisto's tentacles. She's constantly getting wrapped up in them because <laughs> Claremont wants that because to happen. Because of a variety of For reasons, reasons yeah. <laughs> I had never thought about her superhuman senses in the sewer, and I think that that really just shows her dedication to the community that she's built. Right. If we take your point earlier about how the tunnels deter Storm as a claustrophobic right. and apply it into this context, you see Callisto's heroism all the more starkly. Because she's down there in literal filth that she smells more profoundly than anybody else down there. And I think that that, on some level, opens her eyes even more to the injustice faced by the destitute, right? Those of us who are listening to this podcast who have been to punk shows in grimy spaces are probably thinking quite a lot about that <laughs> at this moment. Well, Spencer, is there anything else you'd like to say about Callisto before we start to wrap? I sure hope not. <laughs> Why don't you tell the listeners where they can follow you online and plug anything you want to plug? Well, a fun place, if you like this conversation, to follow me online is on the Cerebro Discord, where, as I believe Kat put recently very well, like, I've seen what he posts. I'm on no obligation to be under any kind of good behavior. <laughs> um, also, I'm on Instagram at Attackerman, and that is also my handle on Twitter, but I'm kind of making more of an effort to not be on Twitter. Same, honestly. That website is so evil. <laughs> so, um, you know, Instagram is fun, and the Discord is the most fun. The Discord is the most fun. And then again, I, I, I don't even know if I can even say the title of this book, so I won't, but later this year, DC Black Label will publish a Suicide Squad miniseries that me and fellow Cerebro guest 
Evan Narciss are writing. I'm extremely excited for that. This is a lifelong dream come true. Evan Narciss is a wonderful comic book writer. It's a great team. It's you, Evan Narciss, Chris Conroy's editing. He's great. Who is the artist? I can say nothing. Oh, that's right. We haven't. It has. So, <laughs> right. So never mind. And a great artist, I'm sure. Anyway, I'm I'm putting my all into it. And I guess all I would say is, if you've read Reign of Terror, in addition to hearing some of these podcast episodes. I've been finding that there are a lot of points I want to make about this era that we live in in its broader context, socioeconomically, that nonfiction cannot always allow. And I am taking all of that and putting it into this miniseries, and I hope you'll check it out. That's great. And foreverwars.substack.com, correct, for your newsletter? Yes, you can find my newsletter on Substack, foreverwars.substack.com. You can follow Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at CerebroCast. You can follow me on Twitter at Dream of Organon or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. You can find all of the episodes plus links to the Discord server, the merch store, and much, much more at CerebroCast.com, the official landing page for the podcast. For $5 a month at the House of Zaladane tier at Patreon.com slash CerebroCast, you can get an ad-free experience, ad-free versions of every episode as soon as they go up. You will also get exclusive access to the Secret Files bonus episodes. I'm going to have a monthly AMA for the House of Z and also fun bonus content that I'm working on right now. So I'm excited about that. As always, thank you for your support. I love doing this show. Next week's episode will feature Nola Fow on Destiny, Irene Adler, and then February, questions open now for Sunfire, Stacey X, Sabretooth, and Chamber. Looking forward to all those episodes. Looking forward to more of 2022 with all of you. Until next time, everybody, thank you for listening, and bye. Until we do Fenris. <laughs> X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. The only hope is 